You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Moe Gamer podcast. This is actually the second attempt at this episode as we uh, we both had a few technical issues over the course of the last week that... Uh, caused uh, caused a few problems with our previous recording so we're going to try our best to recreate and enhance our previous discussion which was uh, originally on the nintendo ds and we're going to uh, have another chat about that today it'll um, be the definitive edition it will be the definitive edition with all dlc included and uh, yeah so uh, yeah i am pete davison from moegamer.net and joining me once again today is my good friend chris kasky from mrgilderpixels.com com is that right yep that's right yes there we are good i couldn't remember if it's dot com or dot net for a sec but there we go yeah mr gilderpixels.com you should definitely commission him for some pixel art because he does lovely pixel art thank you yes right so let's kick off today with uh, a discussion of some of the news stories that have uh, caught our eye recently um i think uh in our previous attempt at this episode we did talk uh, a bit about the death of mu paradise but uh, mm-hmm. there have been some developments in that story since uh, the last time we recorded and they're not good ones unfortunately uh for those uh, unfamiliar with the situation um this is um the situation with rom sites at the moment is commonly assumed to be uh, to do with nintendo throwing their legal weight around with a, a couple of specific rom sites uh, and emu paradise was uh, one of the sites that uh, sort of preemptively took down all their downloads before they ran into any legal difficulties with nintendo so emu paradise is a site that's been up for about 18 years or so uh, and they've been offering downloads of ROM files for all sorts of systems, beautifully catalogued, this wonderfully comprehensive database of things. Um, and uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, they just decided that, uh, no, we're not going to do this anymore because it's it's too risky, uh, which is understandable. But it's made uh, a lot of people very unhappy and it's prompted a lot of interesting discussions about game preservation and such like you might recall a few episodes ago that we uh, we had our own discussion about the value of game preservation and where emulation and ROMs fit into all that as well. And uh, for those who don't know, both of us are unapologetic emulators. Um, we've both got uh, substantial collections of ROMs, including all sorts of uh, rare and interesting games. I covered one on Moe Gamer this week called Arkista's Ring on NES that I'd never heard of before, but uh, it left such an impression on me that, uh, yeah, I just had to write about it straight away. So, yeah, we have established that there is definitely value in ROMs and such like. The main development this week at the time of recording is that uh, the ISO zone which is uh, one of the sites that I regularly use to get my ROMs besides Emu Paradise, has also decided to go the same way. They've decided to remove their downloads. Uh, And this is a particular bummer for me because the ISO zone was very good at uh, collecting together uh, complete or almost complete at least ROM sets for particular platforms. So if you're interested in, in, in getting everything for one platform in one convenient big file, then you could do that from there. Um, I'm sure there's other sites that are doing the same sort of thing there, but that was the big attraction for that site for me, along with the fact that uh, it also seemed to be one of the safer sites out there. There are, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, ROM sites that are less safe, that are riddled with adware, spyware, viruses, all sorts of things that want you to use their own special downloader to download their files and that sort of thing. But Emmy Paradise, the ISO Zone, and a few others that I'm sure people can mention um, 
they uh, they were sort of a, a reliable and safe source of uh, of getting hold of this stuff. So, well, have you got any thoughts to add to what we've uh, what we've mentioned there? Just that it's incredibly sad. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, coming from the responsible adult side of things, obviously, I can fully understand why this time has come and why these sites are voluntarily doing what they're doing in order to protect themselves, their families, their finances, and their legal standing. But uh, mm. it's uh, it's simply tragic. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you've written extensively about the importance of game preservation. We've talked about it, as you mentioned in previous episodes. And, you know, it, it's uh, stunning to me to think about how essentially an entire generation now is going to be cut off from accessing certain titles uh, the, the second-hand market now is garbage yeah. i've been i've been a collector for a very long time and i when i go to second-hand shops or on ebay i pretty much only buy disc-based games second-hand anymore because the yeah. prev- the prevalence of reproduction cartridges on the second-hand market now is so everywhere that like I never feel comfortable purchasing a used cartridge-based game anymore because yeah. unless I feel like taking a special screwdriver out, cracking the disc open, and potentially damaging the label to verify its authenticity, I'm simply uh, scared that I'm not going to be buying a, a full, a full yeah. and proper version. The only way to really make sure in my eyes anymore that I'm buying a legitimate copy of a cartridge-based game is to buy like the filthiest, most shitted-up copy I can find, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because then that one's clearly been through the ringer for 30 years. But then I don't, I but I don't want that copy. So it's like yeah. the catch-22. If I'm going to spend 150 bucks on a copy of Wild Guns, I don't want one with a label that's peeling off and and Joey's name on permanent marker written on the back. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is a side of things I, I've become a lot more aware of recently. Like you, I, I tend to collect disc-based games in preference to anything else. I've got a few cartridge games. I've got my original SNES games from when I was growing up, and I've uh, reacquired some N64 games recently, uh, one of which has got a permanent marker on it. Uh, <laughs> the, others, uh, the others are okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I've become a lot more conscious of this recently because I've started uh, watching a few YouTubers who are into collecting and retro games and that sort of thing and uh what what it's kind of a, kind of a strange situation because part of what they do feeds into this but it's also frustrating them as well so a, a really commonly cited uh guy who inadvertently causes a lot of these problems is a guy called uh, metal jesus rocks are you mm-hmm. familiar with him yeah yeah very much so i've watched yeah, some so, of his videos so so he do, he does a lot of stuff on uh, on hidden gems for platforms which are sort of games that people don't talk about quite so much but which are are worth checking out so ex- exactly the sort of thing both you and me are into um but it, it's often the case that when when he highlights a game like that its value suddenly shoots up ridiculously right um, such is such is sort of the power of its uh, of his influence and um yeah it's uh, it's quite interesting if you watch a channel like the game chasers as well like the whole point of their channel is their show where they go around to flea markets thrift stores and all sorts and try and find games and the the, the frequency of their episodes uh has has just plummeted recently just because there's there's nothing out there to find anymore it's so difficult. When, yeah. So, so when they started, they they were putting out regular episodes very quickly, and it, it's just um, if you listen to, uh, to to the guys from their talk now, it's obvious the frustration they're feeling because it's just so difficult to find these things anymore, and they're running into issues like um, 
uh, sort of resellers at flea markets who have uh, bought big job lots of stuff and they're just taking prices from eBay rather than what these things are actually worth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's, there's all sorts of issues there in the second-hand market. Um, as as we've said, the, the, the disc-based side of things seems to still be okay at the moment. So platforms like PS2 and Wii in particular, you can still get stuff for very, very reasonably, certainly over here in the UK anyway. Yeah. If you go, uh, go to uh, our, our big second-hand chain, CEX, then you can sort of pick up uh, PS2 and Wii games for about 50p each in some cases. Um, GameCube stuff tends to be a little bit more expensive. Wii U is still holding its value quite well. Um, PS3 and Xbox 360 varies, depends on what it is. Um, as with most platforms, RPGs seem to be the things that keep their value uh, a bit sure. more, often, often because a lot of those have limited print runs and such like. But uh, those are the ones that people tend to want to revisit after a few years as well. So, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a shitty situation with the with the uh, the ROM sites and such like. But uh, I I did read somewhere that um, despite uh, the ISO zone. Uh, taking down what it's doing they they are working with some community members to figure something out they were quite vague about what they were going to do but they they are working on figuring something out and in the meantime there are other sites out there there's uh, there's organizations like uh, like redump who have been responsible for dumping a lot of these roms onto the internet in the first place mm-hmm. that, you can, that you can get them from directly as well so it's it's not the end of the world it's it's not as much of a disaster as uh, some some of the media's been wanting to make out recently but it, it is still the end of an era for uh, for these long established sites and it's very sad to see because I, I know certainly emu paradise is a site that i've been aware of pretty much as long as i've been on the internet so oh sure sure um, i have very vivid memories of going on there in my uh web design class in like high school at like age 17 <laughs> and downloading the snes emulator oh it's ZSNES. that's the big one right from back in the day and uh yeah and run saber for the for the super nintendo and uh <laughs> and hiding in the corner and like banging my project out in like 10 minutes and then playing run saber yes. all, all for the rest of the period like <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, the the thing is, in in my case, because I've talked about this before, but in Power Regions, up until about the PS2 era, uh, there were a lot of uh, games that were localized into English for North America that just didn't make that last jump across the Atlantic to us. Sure. So, for example, all of this NES Final Fantasies, for one thing, I think the only one we got was Mystic Quest. Great. Um, <laughs> and a so, fine, a fine game in its own right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I have actually played it, and it's, it's again, it's one of those ones that's not as ter- not as terrible as people like to make out. But it, no. I, can, I can see where some of the complaints come from. But uh, regardless, that is the only one we officially got over here. So while I was young, shortly after I discovered Final Fantasy with Final Fantasy VII on uh, PS One, uh, I then wanted to look back and and find out what these previous games were and uh rom sites and emulation were the way that i could do that i discovered final fantasy 6 and was absolutely blown away by the graphics and sound and music and story in that and sure yeah it was like this whole new world opening up to me of, of stuff that i'd never had access to before just because it hadn't had an official release here yeah um so i mean that's less of an issue these days with sort of digital downloads and re-releases particularly with stuff like final fantasy because god knows how many times that's been re-released these days now Mm -hmm. but um yeah certainly 
mid to late 90s was uh, was uh, a wonderful time to to be able to get into that sort of thing and, and find these uh, these experiences that you'd never had access to before i think part of the thing for me too is to talk about this whole thing from you know whenever i approach something like this it's always from the perspective of a historian that's where my yeah. education that's where my educational background is um as i'd mentioned in the prior discussion about this so one of the things that really frustrates me about some of these games and this ease of access going away is really from an educational standpoint yeah. so like i don't want to turn this into a discussion about like our frustrations with the current games writing and the current games media but like one of the problems i have with a lot of professional writers out there these days especially like young younger writers who are just getting started in the games media is that they have a distinct lack of historical perspective oh yeah they they, they don't have a point of standing to talk about things like mechanics or the way genres have evolved from a place of knowledge they just kind of know what they grew up with which was essentially like ps2 era and forward mm -hmm. so to me by cutting off ease of access for some of these titles what we're really doing is also essentially limiting the historical archives that are available to a lot of up-and-coming people interested in the genre as a means to educate themselves about where the industry has been where it's yeah. gone and where it might be going it's very you know so like Mega Man 11 is coming but and uh, it's great right we just got all those nice Mega Man legacy collections but um, uh, Rockman and base uh, Rockman and Forte I'm sorry is not on any of them which yeah. is a really interesting game uh, Mega Man game for the Super Nintendo so you know if you decided you were gonna write a retrospective article about um, Mega Man because Mega Man 11 was coming out that that's that would be a gap in your knowledge right because yeah. the only way to play that officially now is to play the Game Boy Advance port which is god awful with a cramped screen bad sound <laughs> so you know where does that leave us it, it's very difficult for people to come at things from an informed position if the actual historical <laughs> uh, artifacts aren't available to them to study yeah yeah well i i, I mean the, the most common argument against this is oh you just want free games you just want to pirate these games and such like and i i haven't seen anyone who is upset about this who just wants free games at all even no. even even, even though that, that is what the people who are anti-rom sites and uh, anti-emulation uh, would would like everyone to believe the people who are upset about this are yeah like you say people like you and me people who either want to reconnect with their past in some way or they want to study these games in more detail uh, or find out more about a series that they've come to recently all sorts of things like that and it's yeah it's it's, it's nothing to do with just wanting thousands of free games on your system i mean that's that's really cool sure but in many cases what has happened is people get their start with retro gaming through emulation and such like and think oh wow i really like this i want to get into collecting yeah um i mean there was a there was a really good video i shared with you recently by uh, a guy called game dave who who basically told that exact story like his his big thing is that he's he's got this beautiful game room now with sort of thousands of famicom and nes and um, games from all over the years but he 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 basically said that he would not have got into that hobby to that amount of detail without sites like indie paradise to get him interested in these old games in the first place so i wouldn't have the knowledge i have now yeah yeah same absolutely 
I mean, and it's not just a matter of theft and wanting free games, as you said. So, like, I don't know. Uh, I mentioned Wild Guns earlier, right? Because that's one of my favorite Super Nintendo games. It was great, right? Because we got that cool widescreen enhanced versions for modern consoles. But oh, that was so good. Yeah, but I was a, but I was a fan of that game before it was cool, right? And and, <laughs> and, and, and why? Because I played it on an emulator in high school. Mm. You know, but yeah. to, to to that to that degree, when I find a game via an emulator that I really feel is worth the money, I go out and buy a copy of it. Yeah, you know, definitely. I have like I have some of the big expense. I don't have a huge Super Nintendo collection. I have maybe thirty Super Nintendo games. It's not a huge collection of cartridges I have, but I have Wild Guns. I have Hagenay. I have Ninja Warriors. Like I have those two, three, four hundred dollar carts because I discovered them via emulation, played them to a degree that I said, you know what, these really are important, well-made games that belong in my collection. Then I sought them out and purchased them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even if you're not going to go the whole hog with, with stuff like that, I mean, we talked about this back in the Sega episode, um, Alien Soldier not being re-released at all until the most recent Sega Mega Drive Classics collection on PS4 and Xbox. Um, yeah, a lot of people are aware of that through emulation in the first place. They now have an opportunity to own a copy of that in some means legally so exactly what do people do they went out and bought that collection because they like alien soldier they want to support re-releases of these games so i i bought that collection solely for alien soldier i had no intention of buying that collection i had the ps3 genesis collection which had most yeah. of the same titles i had no no desire to buy that new collection i bought it solely so i could legally own alien soldier finally yeah well yeah it's going to be interesting to see how this develops from here. Like I say, the, the ISO zone does have some, some plans in the pipeline. I think um, some of these sites are interested in investigating ways of maybe partnering with publishers to do something a little bit more legal. But uh, mm. yeah, um, this it's all very up in the air at the moment. And there's a lot of people on edge and upset about it, which is a real shame. But yeah. Um, Anyway, we've uh, we've chatted for nearly uh, fifteen minutes about that now, so let's 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 move on to something else for a little bit just before we get uh, too wrapped up in that. So, um, what other news stories have uh, have come up recently that have caught your eye that you'd like to talk about? I will take the opportunity, given the depressing conversation we just had, to introduce a really cool piece of news related to game archiving and preservation, mm -hmm. which is that. Uh, Project Hardcore, which is a platformer that was developed by DICE of EA fame back oh, in yes. the day, originally intended for publication by Cynosis, of all people, on the Sega Genesis, Commodore, Ami Ami and the Commodore Amiga and Sega CD, uh, is actually being revived from the dead. Uh, it was never released. It was programmed almost to completion, like 99% complete and then never released. Hmm. Um, in 1994 uh, and strictly limited games which is one of those kind of boutique publishers of limited press uh, titles is yeah. actually reviving it um, completing it and is going to be publishing it on the ps4 and vita wow that's cool in, tw in 2019 so a game that almost was released in 1994 will be coming out in 2019 um, that's awesome yeah so that's just really cool um 
it's not a genre I have a whole heck of a lot of familiarity with. You might be better educated because it's kind of what we call a, a Euro platformer. Oh, it, yeah. It, uh, it, to- uh, it totally looks like a Euro platformer. Yeah, yeah. Screenshots. So yeah. it's like Turrican. Like a Turrican is what I could probably compare it most readily to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, beautiful, beautiful pixel art, oversaturated colors, loads of dithering. Like, it's a Genesis slash Mega Drive game that the world has never gotten a chance to play that we're going to get to play in 2018 or 2019 or whenever, whenever it comes out here. First half of 2019. So... Yeah, that'll be worth keeping an eye out for. I, I I hope it'll be a pre-order based kind of thing and not one of these stupid like you have one hour to buy it <laughs> things. But yeah, we shall see. Uh, I was gonna say there's actually rumors too that I, I believe it's strictly limited. But um, one of these boutique publishers also there was a rumor circulating a couple months ago that they had acquired the rights to uh, release to complete in a similar fashion and release. Um, Ryuchi Nishizawa's Clockwork Aquarion, which is what, um, the, like, the last game that Westone made after they stopped making Wonder Boy. Okay. Um, and that was never released either. There, there's just, like, footage of arcade, um, like, arcade prototypes out there of it. Yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know if there's any truth to those rumors, but, um, it, the word was that, that that was coming in a similar fashion too and if that happens I'm going to explode because I'm a huge Westone fan <laughs> oh, nice well that's that's good news yeah it's 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 really interesting to me to, to see these old projects getting revived and such like and um, looking through the, the stuff for uh, for Sonic Extreme which I, I wrote about recently um, there's actually people still fiddling around with the original engine and source code and stuff for that obviously there wasn't enough there to to make a complete game from or anything but there's there's people who have got that engine running again on modern pcs and such like so that's crazy yeah, it's 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 fascinating to see what what people will come up with and so sometimes they'll even become commercial products like this yeah it's absolutely amazing yeah yeah it's very cool uh, you know who knows? Who knows what other secret gems are lying around waiting to be uncovered? <laughs> you never know. All right, other things. Um, I want to talk a bit more about this in our second segment, but uh, I'll, I'll mention it now anyway. THQ Nordic has acquired the Time Splitters and Second Sight IPs, which uh, used to belong to Free Radical, um, which was a, a company made of ex rare staffers, people who worked on Goldeneye and Perfect Dark in the N64 era. Uh, and then they 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 left Rare uh, before Rare became part of Microsoft, um, and yeah, probably their, their most well-known series is uh, Time Splitters, which uh, was a launch game for PS2 originally, and then second and third installments also came out on Xbox and GameCube as well. Second site, I don't have so much familiarity with, but uh, yeah, people people t- seem to be saying positive things about it recently. So. I'll have to check that out at some point, but uh, yeah, this is really exciting to me because I love time splitters, and um, th- yeah, there's there's not a huge amount to say at the minute because they they haven't announced what they're going to be doing with this. Um, the wording of the press release say that they have acquired the time splitters trilogy, which suggests that they, uh, something like an HD remaster might be on the cards or something like that or it might be a completely mm. new game as well there have been several attempts to make a time splitters 4 at some point but none of them have ever come to actual fruition but uh or maybe both you never know so 
We'll have to wait and see on that. But uh, yeah, Time Split is getting resurrected as long as they keep it true to the original, which I'll talk a bit more about in the, in the second segment. Um, yeah, that would uh, be very appealing to me, certainly. Yeah, I'd certainly be interested in it. Um, you know, I- I'm not terribly familiar with Time Splitters. I've never actually played it, any of the games like, myself. But like when Time Splitters was hot and new, I was working in games retail, and I just was always aware of it as kind of like the last bastion of proper um at home on couch split screen multiplayer arcadey fun for for so i'm ready for that especially if there is like a remaster and it comes out on the freaking switch and i (laughs) and i could like and i could like bring it to work and like my buddies and i could like blast each other on lunch break on like split screen like yeah the opportunities are wide open for stuff like that i'll get the next one great stuff Okay, like I said, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that because I've, I've actually been replaying the original Time Splitters a bit, so I'll talk a bit more about that in our coming segment. Uh, let's move on for now, though. Um, Ghostlight have announced that they are going to be working on ports of Japanese RPGs for Switch. Um, if you don't know Ghostlight, they're mostly known these days for their PC ports of um, mainly a lot of uh, Idea Factory and Compile Heart stuff. So they are responsible for the recent PC versions of Mary's Gelter Nightmares, Sorcery Saga, Curse of the Great Curry God, and Omega Quintet. Uh, They did a PC version of Lost Dimension as well. Um, Looking a little bit further back in Europe, they they published the PSP version of uh, Trails in the Sky. Um, Yeah, they haven't announced what they're working on yet, but they are already working on something for Switch right now uh, i just they, want them to release sorcery saga on the switch yeah yeah that'd be cool yeah so i don't have to go buy the vita version like. <laughs> yeah yeah that, that that is a really cool uh, mystery dungeon game there's uh, there is a uh, a playthrough of that on my youtube channel at the moment if you want to see any more of that um but yeah that that would be a great fit for switch certainly if they can base it off the the pc port which is a really solid port that runs really well um the, the nice thing about Ghostlight is their PC ports have been consistently solid uh, recently because uh, I, I don't know if, I don't know how much you, you follow PC ports of console games at all, but there have been quite a lot over the last couple of years that have been poor, to say the least. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not something I'm totally familiar with. Yeah, so, um, I mean, Idea Factory International have done some decent ones, but they, they come out sometimes up to a year after the original console release, so you have to wait a long time for them. And in other cases, the, the PC versions of them, the PC obviously hasn't been the lead platform, and so they're poorly optimized, they don't run very well, they don't look as good as they could do on PC, they don't have all the options that PC owners expect, and I, I mean, a lot of this I, I, I don't personally especially care about, but I know that it's important to a lot of PC owners, and it's just been a bit of a shame to see some of these games not get very good versions on pc but the nice thing about ghostlight is they always do a really good job of porting to pc they include all those options that people expect uh they run well they run at sort of lovely frame rates um they include all the content uh if there was downloadable content for the original console versions as well in most cases so Mm. Um, yeah, they, they 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 really are setting a good example there. So if, if their Switch ports are up to the same standard as their PC ports, then uh, yeah, we could be in for some good times. And so yeah, um, yeah it, it'll be good to see. I, I'm thinking it's it's most likely that they'll port some some Vita games to Switch, which will be absolutely great. Mm-hmm. Um, I want Mar- Mary Skelter. I wouldn't mind Mary Skelter on Switch. I'll tell you that much. I, I mean, yeah, 
as much as I love my Vita, I've pretty much just I don't buy games on the Vita anymore. Mm-hmm. I just I just kind of retired it. Um, yeah. But there's plenty of games that were on the Vita that I would love the opportunity to play on the Switch because part of the reason I I get frustrated with the Vita is that with the flexibility the Switch allows me right now to play handheld or TV. Like, you know, when the Vita was high and with the PS4, I was always torn every time. Do I buy the Vita version or do I buy the PS4 version? Like, so Switch versions make that a completely moot point. (laughs) So... Yeah, I, I mean, with a VT, you got the PlayStation TV and such like, but that that's nowhere near as convenient as it could be because um, yeah. you've got to do things like swap memory cards around and all sorts of stuff like that. So no, um, no, thank yeah, you. Yeah, switch switch is the 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 ideal way to to do that really, and so yeah, it'd be great to see uh, some of those games have a, a second lease of life. All right, what else have we got? Uh, Etrian Odyssey. Okay, you you can talk about that then. <laughs> <laughs> Not a whole hell of a lot to talk about, but uh, Etrian Odyssey's hot. Um, Etrian Odyssey Nexus has been announced for 2019 in the West, which is the what was just released in Japan as Etrian Odyssey X or Etrian Odyssey Cross or whatever you want to call it, um, which is the final Etrian Odyssey title on the 3DS. Um, it is considered to be kind of the definitive Etrian Odyssey title. It now has more job classes and more dungeons than any other title in series history because it draws from the entire history of the series. The previous four, it has a selection of job classes from all four of the previous games. Um, so, um, I don't think there was ever any doubt that we were going to get this in the West because Atlas has always strongly supported the series uh, coming over since day one, but um, it's official now and it's exciting. Uh, can't wait to get my hands on that. It's going to be a lot of game. Um, also, in slightly related news, um, a couple weeks ago, um, you know, it's been confirmed quite clearly that Extreme Odyssey Cross or Nexus or whatever we're going to call it now is the final title for the 3DS. Um, so the people behind Etrian Odyssey have also kind of released a small teaser letting you know that just because Etrian Odyssey is ending on the 3DS does not mean it is ending as a series and that they are currently working on what they are calling the next stage for Etrian Odyssey. I mean, I don't think there's any question that it will likely be on the Switch. Yeah. But, but um, you know, what form that takes is going to be really interesting because the ability to draw your maps as you play on the th- the the DS's bottom screen has always been important to Etrian Odyssey's identity, and when your Switch is docked, you don't have access to that touchscreen. Yeah. So it'll be very interesting to see how they continue to make it unique. Um, I mean, obviously, it'll have all the hallmarks of the Etrian Odyssey series besides the map drawing, but, you know, the beautiful character art, just the overall atmosphere, um, sweet Yuzo Koshiro music, hopefully. But um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of gimmicks they can shoehorn into... Uh, a non-DS console entry into the series. Yeah, definitely. This is still a series that I need desperately need to check out. And well, they have been saying that Nexus is, is perfect for beginners. <laughs> is that, sounds good to me. Huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, the thing about Etrian Odyssey is it's like Final Fantasy. There's, like, connections, but they're not episodic. Yeah. yeah. So you can you can pick any of them up and play... Um, there, there's no need to play any of the older ones. Um, 
I, you know, if, if, if Nexus isn't the one you decide to hop on with, um, three and four are probably the peak of the, the series. It's wonderful. Um, now they're not great games if you need a story, because yes, they're, yeah. they're dungeon crawlers in the very traditional sense. Um, unless you play the two untold titles, which are remakes of one and two on the 3DS, those mm-hmm. had full, full story modes, like you would expect in a normal RPG. Yeah. Um, which was missing in the originals, but, um... Yeah, they're, they're just proper, um, tightly designed dungeon crawlers through and through. Make your own party and get smashed to death repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Oh, want to watch out for them. Okay, uh, last thing I want to talk about is uh, Marvelous Europe announced that they're going to be bringing uh, uppers to PC and PS4. Uh, this is a brawler by uh, uh, Kenichiro Takaki of Senran Kagura fame. Uh, originally released in 2016 for Vita, it was uh, a Japan exclusive, it, it didn't come out over here, it didn't get localized for one reason or another. Um, and so the version we're getting is this newly sort of remastered version, so it's going to be running at full HD resolution, 60 frames a second, so it should be superior to the original Vita version. Um, the concept of it is uh, basically fighting to impress girls. <laughs> so Looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't know a lot about it beyond that, but uh, I know I know people have uh, have had some fun with it, and it, it it's it's got a it's got a cool sort of colourful art style to it, um, and sort of the the kind of fusion of street fighting and uh, what appears to be dating sim mechanics sounds like quite an interesting combination of stuff. So, and uh, I I always enjoy just 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 the actual action of uh, of Takaki's games as well. So mm-hmm. if, it, if it's half yeah. as satisfying as the as the Senran Kagura games, then certainly uh, that'll be a lot of fun. What's really interesting to me about uppers is like this is this is kind of part of a whole genre that we don't really get in the West, but like these like street delinquent beat 'em up games are like a huge thing in Japan. Yes, and, and like we get them occasionally, um, but not as often as they actually come out in Japan. Like like the entire genre, it's a huge in manga and anime. The like the the like noble street delinquents who like fight for territory. It's like a huge genre. Yeah. But it's 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 one that's never really crossed over as effectively as like fantasy manga and anime and games and stuff have or sci-fi. But it, it's always been a huge thing. So it's cool to me whenever we do get a game in the genre because obviously just based on what it is, it lends itself really well to traditional beat 'em up, like arcadey beat 'em up fun, which yeah. I'm always all about. Yeah, looks like fun. So, this is uh, this is due out for PC and PS4 later this year. There's a teaser trailer out now. Um, beyond that, not a lot more to say about it. I don't think you can probably check out some uh, footage and thoughts of the of the Vita version around the internet. But uh, that's about all I can say about that for the minute. Okay, anything else you want to bring up? Yeah, just a couple little things. Um, well, I don't know how little they are, but uh, freaking Diablo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Diablo 3 Eternal Collection uh, coming to Switch. Yes. Um, which I was talking with my wife about last night and warning her that this may lead to the downfall of modern civilization. Because <laughs> uh, if all the gamers and nerds in the world who secretly make the computers everywhere run that make civilization happen are all able to play Diablo handheld wherever they go at work <laughs> on the go and continue that character on home on their television. Like, marriages are going to crumble computers are going to stop working the missiles are going to accidentally launch when no one's watching the computers to make sure they don't like <laughs> this this may be the end of times <laughs> yeah dangerous very dangerous 
Um, so this announcement was actually leaked a day early, um, but then then Blizzard followed it up with with the official announcement a day later. So it, it sounds like this uh, this new version is going to have all the stuff from the console version, a lot of the um, updates from the PC version. It's got both the Reaper of Souls full expansion uh, and the Necromancer uh, character add-on built into it right away. Yep. stuff like the uh the seasonal play um that was in the pc version i'm not sure if that was in the other console versions offhand but it's certainly in the switch version um that's a really fun way to play if you haven't tried it before it's basically you 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 start a new character when a new season starts and there are sort of season specific achievements and accomplishments to do um during during that season period and there's exclusive rewards you can get while you're doing that you don't necessarily have to play it online uh, with other people but you you can get all this cool stuff based on when you're playing um i think the the big thing that they've added in more recent updates is uh, themed seasons um so there's going to be sort of a a running theme through the uh, the objectives and things that you have to do so yeah it's that's going to be really cool i know i know some people out there have mixed feelings about diablo 3 but i've always had a lot of fun with it and uh, yeah a switch version as you say is going to uh, going to be very dangerous <laughs> i think i think a lot of the complaints people had about diablo 3 were mitigated once the console version started coming out too yeah well, I mean, um, I mean, the PC version has fixed a lot of things now as well. It's sure, just, it's sure. just that the the original version of the PC version burnt a lot of people so hard that they just didn't yeah. want to return to it. But uh, yeah, if if yeah. you play it now, it's it's unrecognizable from from how yeah. it launched. Yeah, um, after Reaper of Souls dropped and the auction house went away and the infinite mode got introduced, everyone kind of people started people who were less irritated and and smart enough to come back and take a look at it again and see how it had changed kind of turned around but the switch the console versions on top of everything else eliminated the always online component yes so and added that cool dodge feature on the second analog mm. so i'm i'm very excited because i've held off on the console versions for a long time yeah, but same. now that we're getting a definitive version with the expansion and the necromancer dlc like i'm ready i'm ready to do this and uh, this you know i'm not one for online multiplayer um i, I don't pay for ps plus because i just it's just not worth it for me mm -hmm. but I, I would pay for nintendo's online service if you and i could play diablo <laughs> like <laughs> uh, like you know it's just great i can't wait yeah Definitely up for that. So, um, is there a release date expected for this? I can't. Remember. They say 2018, so probably for holiday, I assume. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be good. That would be a nice way to spend Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My work closes down for a week between Christmas and New Year's, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would but, just be all Diablo. <laughs> yeah, mine doesn't, but I've I've remembered to preemptively book some time off this year, so I will have that that whole period free as well. So guess i know what we're doing if diablo drops in that period <laughs> yeah how about it can't wait all right anything else uh well there's one more thing i wanted to mention oh just a uh, langrisser might be coming back oh yes um yes. uh langrisser is a series of uh strategy rpgs that has been around for a very very long time um but not in the west the West only got, as far as I know, two entries in the Langrisser series. The original Mega Drive slash Genesis game, which was localized as Warsong, and then the god-awful train wreck of an attempt at an, a reboot that came out on the 3DS last year. <laughs> um, so there is 
a tease there has been a teaser for a teaser right so yeah they have they have announced that langrisser is going to get a restart in 2018 and on august 23rd next week we are gonna get some kind of inkling as to what that means um the there's a lot of language in the teaser that is letting us know that it's likely going to be a, a regular console game. Yes. Uh, because there is also a mobile game um, that's coming out as well with the, with some really gorgeous artwork. But um, there appears to also be some kind of console thing in the works that's going to complement the mobile game. So, mm-hmm. uh, given the day we the age we live in, wherein a lot of Japanese stuff comes west now like this could finally be it for Langrisser we might actually start getting them in the west uh, fingers crossed Um, it's a beautiful series with a long history and they're very much worth playing Um, it's a great supplement to kind of the Advance Wars crowd okay yeah. It's basically like medieval advance wars in a lot yeah. of ways. You, you have like your unit on the field, and then that unit is a commander. So like when the units meet on the grid and then clash, it's not like a duel. Like that you that commander has with him like thirty other tiny little soldiers, and like all of them just like run and smash into each other, and like oh you lost six guys, I lost four guys. Like it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. It's always kind of been goofy, and hopefully that some of that retains. Cool. Sounds good to me. Now, I already know the answer to this because we've already had this discussion, as we said before, but uh, no one heard that discussion, so I'm just going to say it's it again. It's true. Um, this, uh, I always get this confused with Grolancer. Is there any connection yes. between the two? There is most certainly a connection. So, yeah, Grolancer is a series that we have had better luck with in the West. Um, yeah. uh, Atlas, or no, I'm sorry, Working Designs and then Atlas um, released quite a few, uh, I believe, kind of the mid the middle titles as well as one of the ones on PSP which was a remake of I think five but I'd have to check again to make sure but we got about four of them in the West um, and they are tangentially related in the sense that they are from the same developer and they feature the original titles feature work from the same artists uh, Satoshi Rishihara um, who's quite popular um, and very very talented if you have a chance to look up his business um, but the idea was always that kind of Langrisser was that developer's take on strategy RPGs. Grolancer was more their take on a more traditional RPG, but it also still features strategic elements. Yeah. So there, there's a connection there, but they're, they're very, uh, very different types of games. Okay, cool. All right, that was uh, natural enough. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Anything else you you'd like to bring up before we move on? Uh, there's a new torchlight coming. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We we don't know much about it, but uh, it's supposed to have some kind of persistent online quality. Torchlight Frontiers. Um, I love the original Torchlight games. Hopefully, this is great too. Um, I also thought it might be worth mentioning uh, that new RPG from. Uh, Compile Heart, Arc oh, yes. of Alchemist. Yes, they released a new art for that recently, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they released the official artwork of the three main characters, um, which are really cool. Um, so Arc of Alchemist is coming from Compile Heart. It's a new action RPG with some strategic elements um, with a desert-themed setting. Um, just, I don't know, looks really cool. It kind of looks to me like their attempt to make an East kind of game, because you have a party of three that you can kind of actively swap between, which is kind of what East does now in the modern iterations. Yeah. Um, we don't know too much about gameplay, just 
a couple screenshots, but it certainly looks like one to keep an eye out for. There's some really good people behind it on the art and music, uh, art and music um, fronts, so I'm excited about it. Yes, definitely one to watch out for. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, compile art stuff anyway, but uh, this is looking very nice. It's got some nice character designs, and as you say, there's some good talent attached to it. So there's uh, Yoshitaka Amano on uh, sort of concept art duties and so on. Uh, who else was involved with it? Remind me. Oh, let me see here. I don't remember either. Amano was the big one. Yes. Cer- certainly. Uh, uh, some folks who worked on the Senran Kagura series. Uh, uh, Yukonori Kirijima, who yep. was a scenario writer for Senran Kagura, okay. is working, cool. on, working on the story. Uh, so yeah, there's some, some really cool people behind it. And uh, I definitely want to play this because I really specifically like um, action RPGs that have like a really cutesy look, mm. a- and and this does like bright cut like you know, the characters aren't are, are kind of not quite SD but they they have a like a like a chubby cute look about them and yes. I'm, like all about it yeah very appealing looking forward to that oh um Kitajima also works on 428 Shibuya Scramble as well which is uh, people are starting to talk about at the minute um, that's uh, supposed to be a very interesting visual novel for people who don't typically enjoy visual novels from from whatever oh, okay uh, i think there's a demo up now on ps4 for that i don't know a lot about it but i know it involves uh, lots of sort of uh, photography of, of oh interesting uh, rather than sort of heavily stylized artwork uh, but it's it, it's still got a an interesting and bizarre story from the sound of things i, I don't know a lot about it beyond that but there's uh, people online seem very excited about it so i'll have to give that a look at some point cool uh, so, all right, that is the news for now. Anything else? No, I could go on for a while, but I, th- <laughs> I, th- I think we're—I uh, think we've got all the big ones. All right, I think we're good for now then. So, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and have our usual discussion about what we've been playing recently. So, see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our traditional second segment, we talk a bit about what we've been playing recently, and I teased uh, a bit of time splitters earlier, so uh, I'll, I'll make a start with that. So, uh, you say you're not familiar with time splitters, really, is that right? Just in concept, but I've never really played it. Yeah. So, uh, time splitters was a PS2 launch game. Um, as I said earlier, it's from Free Radical, which is uh, made up primarily of uh, team members who used to be part of Rare, who worked on GoldenEye and Perfect Dark on the N64. Um, and it very much shows in Time Splitters in that it's it's obviously based on the same. Um, I don't know if it's exactly the same engine, but it's 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 certainly an evolution of that engine. So the the way the levels are designed is quite similar. The way it plays is very similar. Um, so uh, in in Goldeneye and Perfect Dark, you had sort of um, quite a generous auto aim, so you could fire from the hip very easily. But you also had a precision aiming mode where you can move a crosshair around on the screen and actually take specific pot shots at particular body parts and such like um and, and time splitters is is the same um it's very much a shooter in the in the sort of late 90s mold in that it's it's quite fast it's very arcadey um it's not all about um it, there is locational damage but it's it's not all about getting headshots and sniping people from across the map 
most of the maps are reasonably sort of qu close quarters or indoor maps so uh, there just aren't big fields to do a lot of sniping in. There is a sniper rifle, but it's one of the worst sniper rifles in any game that I've ever played. Um, <laughs> which is made up for by the fact it's got one of the best shotguns I've used in any game. Because it's, uh, it is a shotgun that can hit people from about uh, sort of 200 feet away. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I mean, the, the big appeal of Timesplitters for me has always been it's got these really wonderfully meaty-feeling weapons. It's got such good sound effects for the weapons and everything you do that it's, it's just really satisfying to play. It's uh, it's really smooth and slick. It was sort of an early PS2 game that was sort of running at a solid uh, 60 frames a second all the time. It looked good. It's got this lovely stylized artwork and all the characters and such like. And it's got an absolute shitload of content as well. Um so the the original time splitters is split into three main modes uh, there is the uh, the story mode uh, which is the main source of criticism for it when it was originally released in that it doesn't have a story <laughs> so the the story mode is just a a one or two player uh player versus environment mode basically where you have a level uh where you start at one end of it you have to get to the other end of it find an item and then get all the way back to the start again uh, on your way in there are enemies at predefined locations um, that we, who will sort of jump out and start shooting at you. On the way back, uh, the time splitters start teleporting in and trying to wreck your shit before you get back to the exit point. And that is it. That is the whole game. Every level plays out in the same way. You just get in, get the object, get out, while trying not to be ripped to shreds by time splitters. Um, but it's just really fun because there, there is there is such a strong emphasis on this speedy arcadey gameplay. Um, the, the the generous auto aim means that you can sort of point vaguely in the direction of an enemy and shoot them, and they will fall over. And that's that just keeps things really snappy and pacey. Like I say, that that mode of it sounds it feels very much like a late '90s shooter, so something like Doom, Duke Nukem, that kind of thing. It's it's got that feel to it. The good stuff, absolutely. <laughs> Um, and then alongside that, you've got uh, what it calls arcade mode, which is basically it, it's multiplayer mode, but it can be played single player against bots as well. So arcade mode, you have a series of maps and you can unlock more by completing levels in story mode. And each map has a series of different game modes that you can play on it. So not every map will support every game mode because it's not sort of laid out correctly for it or doesn't have the right trigger points on it. So you can play a basic deathmatch or a team deathmatch on every map, but then other ones have things like... Um, uh, sort of your standard capture the flag modes and such like um and, and other variations there um so in terms of um game modes and such like it, it's it's basically what we've what we tend to expect from a first person shooter now but if you think back to when that first came out the the variety of stuff on offer for the multiplayer mode was unparalleled in anything except for GoldenEye and Perfect Dark at the time because this this was sort of even before Halo and stuff like that mm. really really got console first person shooters uh, up and running to the masses so this was a fantastic party game you could play up to four player split screen multiplayer if you had the PS2 multi-tap uh, you could play the story mode in two player split screen co-op as well um, and that's then once cool you, that's yeah, a big deal yeah that's that, that's a lot of fun and it, it, it very much changes how you how you approach the levels as well just because you can sort of flank enemies and take different directions and such like so uh yeah the uh, the, the other aspect in, in which this is a bit like 90 shooters is that the the levels are, are not straight lines to the finish either they're sort of branching pathways and different routes and shortcuts and all sorts like that so they're interestingly designed levels um 
And the, the third mode that's in there, besides the story and arcade mode, is the challenge mode, which unlocks when you beat the story mode for the first time. And this is a series of um, short, timed, score-based levels in which you have specific things to do that make use of the game's mechanics in various creative ways. So the first one, for example, is uh, you have two minutes, there's a bunch of zombies coming at you, and you have to shoot off the heads of 50 of them. You, and you've only got a shotgun you can respawn as many times as you like but obviously every time you die it wastes a bit of time so all you got to do shoot the heads off 50 zombies then there's another one where there's uh you have to shoot 100 uh duck men who are running around the docks <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, another another one where you got to throw bricks through every window in a chinese restaurant and that sort of thing so they're all really stupid things and they got even sillier in the later times for this game just because they really went absolutely batshit with the character designs in the later ones but um the original times for this has still got some very amusing characters in there it's um it's got this little thing called Robofish, who is literally just a goldfish in a bowl atop a sort of robotic body and you, that's pretty you select, sweet you select them on the character screen and it just runs around going blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like you know you know I mentioned I, I hadn't played these games back in the day and part of it was because uh, they didn't do a very good job of selling themselves. Yeah. Like I, I feel like if you looked at now the later Time Splitters titles like I'm thinking like Future Perfect yeah. and stuff had had kind of goofy cover art but like the original Time Splitters like nobody told me that game was silly. Yeah, yeah. Like just just based on the comic, like the art, it was like dude with sunglasses and like shaved heads doing like the Matrix fallback and like shooting guns. Like so, like there was nothing, you know. Don't judge a book by its cover, blah blah blah. But there was nothing of on that game's box to tell me like this is a goofy arcadey game where you can hunt duck men and be a fish robot. Yeah, <laughs> like if someone would have told <laughs> if someone would have told me that back in the day, like I probably would have been like hardcore into these games. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I like it's, silly. It's I don't know. It's, it's kind of difficult because there is an aspect of time splitters that you're obviously supposed to take at least slightly seriously, especially in the later games where they actually make an effort with the story and adding some some voice acting and cutscenes and stuff in there. But yeah, the the main appeal of these is just the the absolutely massive selection of characters, the ridiculous situations into which you can put them, the silly weapons you've got. All sorts of stuff like that, and it's that sort of thing is quite difficult to get across on packaging. I think so. I mean, I've got the 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 UK box here in front of me. I don't, I don't know if that's the same as the American one. I mean, the front cover shows off quite a few of the characters, and in fact, Robo Fish is there on the cover uh, in the background. But but sort of at the forefront of the more sort of uh, the, the more sort of human characters. So you've got um, on the front cover. Yeah. Yeah, see, the front cover of the first Time Splitters in the U.S. is literally just, like, the main character, like, shooting guns. Oh, okay. Like, they yeah. tried to make it look, like, as much of, like, a generic, like, military man's game as they possibly could. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Like I say, the, the, the U.K. one has got a nice selection of the different characters there. So you've got the, the sort of a stiff upper lip pilot dude with the moustache. So you've got the, the cop lady. Uh, you've got the the Chinese waiter, you've got the robots, you've got Robo Fish, you've got some of the mutants. Uh, yeah. And then on the back, on the back, I mean, it tries to make the story sound quite serious. It's the Time Splitters, an evil race dwelling outside of time and space. Throughout history, they have manipulated the fate of humanity. And you know, there's, there's nothing to do with what's in the game. What, what you really need to go is, this is a game where you can play a robot that goes, ow, when you shoot him. Um... <laughs> <laughs> No, it sounds like a really good time. So I'm really hoping that 
we get some kind of HD remaster trilogy yes, set. Yes, I'm, I'm I, very much up for that. It's, uh, mm. This is this is a game that, I, that uh, when when I had friends who still left their houses, um, this, we we'd spend a lot of time playing this. And like I say, that that robot I mentioned that goes ow oh, is is still a running joke among us when we're doing anything that involves characters taking damage. So like a board game, we get hit by an enemy, someone will go ow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's that's a great game um the news that uh, thq nordic has picked up the rights for that prompted me to not only revisit the first one but i've also picked up ps2 copies of times 2 and future perfect as well so i'm going to be revisiting those in more detail in various forms over the next few weeks i'm sure there'll be some articles about them on moe gamer at the very least and possibly some some videos or some playthroughs as well so looking forward to exploring those a bit more so mm-hmm. I'll hand over to you uh, for now. What have you been up to? Not a whole heck of a lot. Um, I've been kind of continuing to fritter away with um, Shining Resonance, which is just really kind of... It's a feel-good, pleasant, cozy game. So, you know, um, nothing new or amazing has revealed itself except for I finally got the character that I most wish to romance in my party. So now the whole game takes on a different... (laughs) a different uh <laughs> different feeling because now i'm in love so so uh so you know that's that's fun um we're gonna have our first date this weekend Ooh, nice. uh, yeah. i saw, I saw uh, just, just just a slight tangent but i saw a great tweet on this subject the other day which was which was someone saying um it was them in the 90s was like oh i must not tell anyone about i am i'm interested in this game because of its romantic elements and that was them in the 90s and like them today was who in this can i fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, Rena's behind is rendered with incredible detail, <laughs> and uh, she wears one of those like long silk Chinese dresses. Oh, nice. It's uh, it's a problem. Also, she's a, she's great um, because everyone like you know in you have like all like the typical like stereotypical characters in shining resonance like the first two girls you meet who are obviously like the critical pal like these are the girls you're, you're supposed to be choosing between the two main girls right yeah you have sonia who is like the like this tomboyish like princess who is like the tank of your party like i will protect everyone and defend my kingdom's honor but like like I'm also a girl. Don't like, even though I'm a knight. Like, and then like I'm gonna give you sass. Like you know, like that character. Yeah. And then you, and then you have the like the elf priestess. Like, like the demure. Like she wears like the the Japanese like robes and like. Yeah. You know, I'm an elf. Like you are the shining dragon, and you are his radiance. And like, what can I do to serve you and defend your honor? Like, no, boring. You're boring. Get out of my face. <laughs> like, then you I meet want- Rit. Yeah, hmm? I-, I want the mage with the hot ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, well, then you meet then you meet Rinna, and she's sexually aggressive. <laughs> like, and like peppers all her dialogue with double entendres, and is like goofy. And like she's just everything's a joke with her, and it's so she's great because the other two are just like so like stereotypical and boring, and then like Rena, and then like Rena comes along and like she gets in trouble from the priestess girl for not respecting you enough, <laughs> and like that's precisely why I like her because she like takes the piss out of everything. Excellent. She's lazy and goofy and wonderful, 
and she fights with a giant trumpet that is also a, ma a magician's staff. So, excellent. I like her already. Yeah, she's pretty great. I mean, all the girls are pretty great. Like Sonia's great too, but but Rena's definitely my will be my first playthrough. What's also cool about Shining Resonance too is um, it's uh, it it doesn't consider sex. So like you can date the guys or the girl. Like you can just date everyone. Okay. Like there's no. I mean, I, I haven't taken any of the guys out on like the dates or anything to see what that's like, but like you can actually play through the game and pick one of the guys as like your critical path for like who you romance the most. Because in that game, you unlock like character traits based on like your relationships with the characters that like affect the way the part uh, the affect the way combat works in certain ways. Right. So like whoever you like critical path to the end. Like, they'll probably get, like, the biggest boosts and stuff, I'm assuming. Okay. So, like, you can pick one of the guys, too. Like, whoever. Like, whoever is in your party is available. That's really interesting, because that is literally the first I've heard of that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, you can go... Like, I have... I just got one of the guys, the first guy in my party, who's, like, the cool, like, the cool, like, redhead in the trench coat who has, like, a staff that's also an electric guitar. Like, he's awesome. <laughs> um, and, like, I can... You know, I can ask him out, too, if I want. Yeah. Like, there's no... Yeah, and, and also, you're not locked. Like, I totally still am asking Sonya out, even though I'm technically pursuing Rena. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, but you can... You know, you meet the... There's a hub town, and you can just meet them and talk to them. Yeah. And then there's a just a dialogue option to, like, ask out. And then when you go back to the inn, you get a dialogue sequence. And then once you've done enough of those, like, special, like in dialogue sequences at the end um and you and if you've answered enough questions correctly and like built their positive feelings up towards you then you can go on like a proper date date and then like you go out on the town and like walk around and there's like events and then okay. that and then when you get one of those it usually results in like a reward that will affect combat in a certain way yeah so but yeah you can ask the guys out i think there's i think there's two guys and then if you're playing the special mode that's part of the refrain version, there's another girl and another guy. There's yeah. two more, two more playable characters. So yeah, I'm really enjoying that so far. Um, but I, I haven't been playing it too much. Um, lately I've been playing a lot of um, the Mega Man X Legacy Collection. Oh yes. Uh, I'm not really sure there's too much to talk about with that. I mean, these games are ancient at this point, but it's a really competent really competent port. I've been play, uh, I've been kind of going back and forth between the first Mega Man X and Mega Man X4 um, a little bit, and uh, I really enjoy how the first Mega Man X, they've incorporated a save feature into the password screen, which is really nice and seamless. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. Uh, there's not, not much to talk about. They're Mega Man. <laughs> They're good. I like them. Nice. Yeah. That's uh, as I've said before. That's uh, that's a series I need to explore at some point. I've um, I have the SNES Mini, so that has Mega Man X One on it, I think. Um, oh, okay. So I need to give that a go at some point. But, uh, Mega Man in general, black spot in my knowledge. But uh, I found out a bit about that when uh, when I covered the Inti Create stuff sure. a few months back. But uh, it's something I feel like I I should get some first hand experience with at some point. So I will probably yeah, well. grab the various Legacy collections at some point. Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it to have them all. You know, that, that and the original Mega Man Legacy Collection sets. Uh, you know, the second one is the first opportunity you have to own um, nine and ten physically, which mm. is pretty cool. Yes, 
Which are into creates developed. Yes, yes. Yes, alright. Okay, anything else for you to talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been... Uh, I was kind of inspired by your recent article about um, Sonic's handheld versions, which was oh, yeah. really cool and thorough, and it kind of got my head into like old-school 8-bit handheld space quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of been going back and doing some explorations of some of my favorite old-school handheld games, mostly on like the Game Boy and Game Boy Color. Um, so I've been playing on and off lately um revelations the demon slayer oh yes yes tell me about um this. so this is um this is a shin megami tensei game um so in japan there is a series for the original game boy called uh, megami tensei the last bible which is essentially um the an attempt to make kind of a more youth accessible version of Shin Megami Tensei for the Game Boy. Right. Um, so I think there were two or maybe even three of those. I think the first two were on the Game Boy and I think the third one was on the Super Nintendo. Mm -hmm. um, but Revelations the Demon Slayer is the only one we got in the West and it is the Game Boy Color enhanced version of the original Last Bible for the Game Boy. Okay. So it's basically just I don't know. It's it's hand uh, original Game Boy Shin Megami Tensei. So as Game Boy RPGs tend to go, like distill it down to its basest elements, make it eight bit, and it's a, a, a fantasy tinged Shin Megami Tensei. So it's not like a it's not like a post apocalyptic setting. It's like a pure fantasy, uh, pure fantasy RPG setting. Um, but then it's just SMT, right? So you walk around. You have the classic. Um, in your battle commands, talk is an option. You just go yeah. through dialogue trees and try to recruit the monsters. Um, then a little bit in the, into the game, you meet the first party member character who's not a monster that you can get, and he brings the ability to fuse the monsters in. So, just a typical turn-based RPG with a fantasy setting, but it's, a, it's an SMT game, so it has the fusion, it has the cool monsters to collect. Um, it's just fun because it's on the Game Boy, right? So, like, everything's really yeah. goofy, and, like, all the dialogue is, like, super terse. Like, <laughs> and, and it's, like, there's probably, like, I haven't even encountered that many, like, dialogue options. Like, every monster seems to ask the same exact questions. It's just, like, what order you answer them in apparently becomes important. <laughs> uh, and it's also, like, super goofy because it's, like... I guess the way they've incorporated like the biblical and mythological elements into it, mm -hmm. as is typical of SMT games, is that like the different towns have like sages, yeah, and like they're named after like pretty classical biblical figures. So, so like when like the big like issue happens, and, like oh no, the demons are starting to take over, so, and then someone will be like, oh, I wish Michael and Lucifer were here, and it's like it's just <laughs> it's just it's just like hilarious because because it's like for the Game Boy, right? So like nothing is really presented with context at all. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun with that. Um, I'm also having a lot of fun with. Um, a weird shooter from Jalico that I used to love when I was growing up called Battle Unit Zeoth, which is, um, like, it's a horizontal shoot 'em up where you play as a giant robot fighting, like, other cool mechanical enemies. And mm. um, the whole thing is it's auto scrolling, like a typical horizontal shooter, but you can actually shoot left and right. Yeah. 
um, and you have like a rocket boost. So like you're you are actually like running on the ground if you're not pressing anything. You're not flying like in a normal horizontal shooter, and you actually have to hold the jump button and like tap it to like boost or like adjust your um, your height depending on where you want to be and who you want to shoot and where you want to be lined up with. So I've been playing that a lot. It's cool. Um, you know, as a, as a huge pixel art guy, like I really love the Game Boy for some reason. I really love like seeing what could have been accomplished with like such a low screen resolution. I, I've come to really feel that recently as well. The, the Game Boy and the Game Boy Color have got such a fascinating library on there. and There's some really cool stuff in there. I mean, oh yeah, obviously, obviously it's a, it's a sort of catalyst for me to start exploring this in a bit more detail was uh, was when I covered Shantae, but yeah, there's some, some really cool stuff. Um, in fact, I was very surprised to discover have you have you played WayForward's two Sabrina games at all on Game Boy Color? No, no, but they were pretty influential in Shantae, right? Like, there's some stuff oh, in Shantae that was lifted oh, wholesale oh, from them, right? Yeah, it's, it's the exact same engine. I, I, I was just curious, and I just happened to see them in my Launchbox library, so, so I double-clicked on one, and I was very surprised to see that, you, you know in Shantae where you've got the splash screen at the beginning where it says way forward, and then Shantae sort of struts across the screen? Yeah. It was exactly the same in Sabrina, except it's just Sabrina strutting across the screen confidently. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> I... I really love WayForward's licensed content to begin with. Yeah. Like, they're, they're one of the few people out there, like, that when they get a license, like, they, they really do it right. Yeah. Like, they did that Thor game on the DS, like, based mm -hmm. on the Marvel's Thor, and it's unbelievably beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. also did a game on, I think, on the Game Boy Color, uh, based on, like, Wendy the Witch from, like, Casper. Oh, yeah, yes, Wendy Every Witch Way. That's, that's a really cool game, actually. That's got some really, really cool uh, puzzles and things in it. Because it's, it's that of, it's kind of was the genesis with... of Mighty Switch Force, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Of... It's all to do with sort of switching gravity and, and switching things around so you can traverse the levels and so on. That is such a cool game. De definitely give that a go if you get the chance. Yeah, it's funny because, like, you know, usually my... I'm always a like, licensed game. It must be schlock. But, yeah. like, if if, yeah. um, if WayForward was involved, it's always worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like from what I understand, like they even did a game on the either either the, the original DS or the 3DS. I don't remember going back. They did a game, a uh, licensed game based on the Ho Hotel Transylvania. All right, yeah. And like, I don't know if the game was quote unquote good, but like, I read a review of it, and they were like, "It's bizarre how much Castlevania DNA is in this game." <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I think I think most recently they did that with um, they did that with the Mummy, didn't they? They did a license yes. with the Mummy on a modern consoles, and everyone yes. was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" <laughs> yeah, I hadn't played it, but it is gorgeous. Like yeah. if you look at the screenshots, and I, I think it's a quote-unquote Metroidvania. Actually, yeah. yeah, it looks a lot like that Aliens game that came out for the DS a little while ago, mm. which I don't know if that was also them or not. Yeah, not sure. Yeah, I know. I, I I know that the Mummy game is very well received, and it's it's sort of got a combination of RPG elements and platform shooter elements and exploration and all sorts. So, yeah, definitely want to have a look at. It. It's got gorgeous pixel art. So if you're into that kind mm -hmm. of thing, which I know you are, and I'm sure many I... people listening are as well. But uh, yeah, check that out for sure. All right. Um, anything else for you? No, that's it for me. I, like I said, I, I've been I've started writing again recently. So like I haven't really been gaming as much. Uh, okay. 
All right, I won't go on too long about this because I'd like to devote an episode to this at some point, but uh, I have been continuing to play Sonic Heroes uh, in preparation for, for writing about it before the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Sonic Heroes is really cool. It's not a Sonic game that I had much experience with before. Um, my my experience before my efforts for this month kind of finished at, at Sonic Adventure 2 on Dreamcast, so it's been really cool to get into virgin territory for the first time and and sonic heroes is uh, yeah it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. it's a great game yeah so i i've uh, so far played through the team sonic team rose and most of the team chaotic story and it's really interesting how they have managed to uh, take the same levels and put a different twist on them with every set of characters um, because it, it's the same basic level geometry each time. You don't go through completely unique levels, but they, there is a very different feel to each one. Even though they, each team has still got the same basic mechanics. So you've got the you've got the speedy character, you've got the power character, and the flying character. But just the implementation of those each time is is so different. It, it yeah, it feels like a completely different experience with each of those teams. Not just from a story perspective, because story is not Sonic Heroes' strong suit. Um, <laughs> to say the least, but uh, I, I, yeah, it's even more bare bones than, than than certain aspects of Sonic Adventure. But it, it's got some personality to it, and it's silly. And Team Team Chaotix is amazing. I love Team Chaotix. Um, Vector the Crocodile is a particular highlight, just because he's he, he's just like this sort of hard boiled. He's obviously older than everyone else in the whole cast, and he he just really shows it all the time, like. I, w- I was doing the puzzle where I was playing as um, SPO earlier, and uh, both Charmy and Vector were just standing around waiting for him to finish this. And Vector just randomly burst into song at one point, and it's just this sort of dad type singing, where he's, <laughs> he's just he's just sitting there and like rather than, rather than singing an actual song, he's sort of singing the rhythm guitar part. So he's sort of sitting there going, na 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 na. What are you doing? Didn't you like look up his bio and he's like a detective by trade or something oh, oh, bizarre like oh, oh, that? Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The whole thing, the whole thing with Team Chaotix is that they they are a private detective agency, and like the, the whole hook for their plot in Sonic Heroes is they get hired by someone to track down Robotnik. Um, but it's it's very obvious right from the outset that the the person who has hired them is just pitch shifted Robotnik because the whole thing with Sonic Heroes is you, you're chasing down a fake Robotnik basically who's actually Metal Sonic. Spoiler. Um, but yeah, yeah, they, 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 their whole thing is they, they get hired by it. So, so like Vector is making occasional comments while you're wandering around. Which is like, oh, I forgot to pay the electric bill at the office and that sort of thing. And it's just like not the sort of humor you expect to hear in a Sonic game, but it's brilliant. It's awesome. And, yeah, the the interplay between them is is great as well because Spo is very serious as uh, as a ninja chameleon. Charmy is just an idiot. Um, <laughs> and, and Vector is sort of obviously wants to be the voice of reason at one point, like. You'll get to a point where there's some sleeping enemies ahead of them, and, and Espio is all like, oh, there are sleeping enemies. We must be very quiet and sneak up on them. And Charmy just goes, okay, really loud. And Vector's just like, oh, my God, what are you doing? <laughs> I love it. It's I love great. Sonic. I love Sonic. And I love Sonic's as, as the internet is fond of calling them Sonic shitty friends, quote unquote. No, I love no. Sonic yeah. and all of Sonic's shitty friends. Yeah, no, I, I've been looking back on, on some re- reviews of, of some of these games and it's like, oh, oh, people play Sonic games to play as Sonic. And it's like, no, I've been having way more fun playing as all these other characters just because they're such goofy idiots. I love them. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. 
Sonic Heroes is just really appealing to me just because it, it, it it's it's interesting in that I've kind of been thinking of it in the same perspective as uh, you you think of a narrative in the visual novel. In the a narrative in a visual novel, you have to do all the different routes to understand how the story goes. But mm -hmm. in, in Sonic Heroes, you have to do all the different routes to understand how the mechanics work. Oh, okay. And that's a that's a really interesting approach here, because because while each of the sets of characters have got the same basic abilities, each of them have got their own slight twist on it. So like certain certain of them can can do a specific thing that the others can't do. So um, so like SPO can go invisible, for example, when he does his, his jumping special attack, whereas Sonic's special move is to summon a, uh, summon a big tornado type thing. So you you kind of don't see all the mechanics and how they work unless you play all of those characters and the oh, fact okay. that, and the fact that team chaotics levels are all mission based rather than just get to the end which is what all the other teams are um that puts a completely different twist on it as well so in team chaotics levels you can get to the end of the level and not have completed your objective which means you then have to teleport back to the start of the level and basically do another lap of it in order to find the thing that you missed Okay, uh, which is so it's more of an exploration-focused approach. Kind of, yeah. I mean, the levels are designed to be pretty linear yeah, with a few branching paths in, in, in most cases anyway. So it's more a case of observation rather than exploration. So spot okay. it, spotting things as you go past before you go past them and can't go back to them. Um, but yeah, that just puts a really interesting twist on things because it, it, it means you have to kind of slow down and look around and that kind of thing. But there's also parts of the game where, uh, where, where you're playing as some of the other characters, and you think, well, why, why is that there? Why is that part of the level being set up like that? But then you play it with another set of characters, and it becomes very clear why it's being set up that way. So there's uh, a level at one point that is full of frogs that, if they see you, they make it start raining, and that causes flowers to bloom, and that sort of summons platforms and such like. Uh, but Team Chaotix's mission is to sneak through that area without being seen by any of the frogs because if it suddenly starts raining someone someone is obviously going to know that they're coming um, and so there's there's a part partway through one of those levels where there's a route you can go one way that there's a frog and there's a power up or you can go the other way which kind of leads you to the same destination but it kind of bypasses the frog and it, it doesn't become obvious why that's there until you play as Team Chaotix Right. So, so there's lots of interesting design decisions like that throughout the game, and it's uh, I eat stuff like that up. That's yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it does. It does have its frustrating aspects. There's, there's things like sort of um, where it will fling you into the air and expect you to land on a rail to grind on it can be quite infuriating at times, especially in the later levels. But for, for the most part, it's it's a solidly designed game that's a lot of fun. So I'll be writing more about that in this uh, this coming week as we go on, and then moving on to uh, to some of Sonic's later stuff. So. You've got Generations, too, right? You're going to be looking at Generations? Yes, yes. yes. That's know, a great game. Yeah, I know that incorporates uh, some stuff from, from Heroes along the way as well. So, but yeah. I just I just want a new Chaotix game at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it, we, we talked about it before, but you, didn't, you haven't played the original Chaotix. I right? haven't, no. No, you did it, not have nice things to say about it. <laughs> it's one of the few it's like it's a sonic game that i can't really defend in good conscience like i'm a i'm an apologist for sonic pretty much at all times but uh the original chaotix is it's just a mess unfortunately yeah. i don't want it to be <laughs> but it is yeah that's a shame oh well anyway so there's going to be more more sonic on uh, on moe gamer uh, for the rest of this month and uh, as i say i would like us to do a sonic episode where we can talk more about 
these various different games uh, towards the end of the month. So, mm-hmm. to that. And that's pretty much all I have been playing recently, apart from Dragon Quest, which I'll talk more about in the next segment because it's relevant to our main topic, which is the <laughs> Nintendo DS. So, uh, we're going to take another short break and then we'll be right back with that discussion for you. See you in a moment. Welcome back. And for this third segment, we're going to be getting into our main topic of the episode, which is the Nintendo DS uh, handheld platform. So, I think just to start the discussion, just before we get into the specifics of games and such, like, um, just tell me a bit about your first experiences with the DS, how you came to it, and what you thought of it when you first came across it. Well, I was one of those people that kind of didn't like the DS to start. Um, <laughs> I've always been kind of one of those guys who, when a new console comes out, like, I don't care about hardware. I'm not a tech guy. So I just care about games. And so when the original DS launched, there just wasn't a whole heck of a lot there for me to get super excited about. Mm -hmm. Like, you know... I I didn't feel the need to spend thirty nine ninety nine on a port of Mario sixty four when I had Mario sixty four, and I didn't really feel there was you know a lot of like kind of little puzzle games and stuff. And as cool mm-hmm. as some of those are, I didn't know if that justified buying a system or not to me. Yeah. So I was actually kind of a late late comer to getting the original three DS. Mm-hmm. I mean the original the original DS. I'm sorry. Um, once I got one, I, I loved it. But you know, to me, I waited till there were some more games on it. Yeah, I was actually pretty much exactly the same. I, I remember when it was first announced, it was like, "Oh, this two-screen console." It, it, I just pretty much wrote it off as a as a gimmicky system to begin with, and a lot of the early lineup of the games didn't do an awful lot to dispel that theory in the first place. Uh, it wasn't until a bit later that there were some games on it that started sounding a bit interesting that I might want to check out. Um, I've, I've mentioned before that um, one of the things I tend to do with new consoles when, when I do get around to picking them up, because it's quite rare I pick them up at launch, um, one of the things I do tend to do with a new console when I get one is to look for games that sound interesting but which obviously haven't been um, sort of pushed that hard. They haven't been talked sure. about much by the media. I haven't heard much about them and so on. And in the case of the Nintendo DS, the, the two games that caught my attention the most when I picked one up for the first time uh, was Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney and Trauma Center. And those were both examples of um, games that I hadn't really seen done before, or rather thematic content that I hadn't seen explored a great deal before. So um, so Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is obviously a, ge- a game about being a lawyer in its most basic terms, um, and the, 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 the box didn't really explain a huge amount about how that would play, but I was very interested in the concept of, of just a, how can they make this work? How can they make a game about being a lawyer work? And so I wanted to find that out. Uh, and Trauma Center as well was um, a, a, about medicine, about being a doctor, a surgeon. 
um, I, I've, I've talked before about um, the, the old game Life and Death on PCs, which is the the only real sort of previous example I can think of that sort of thing. And that was very, uh, very much a simulation of being a doctor. It was quite limited in terms of scope. So I think there are only three different operations you could perform in that game, but uh, it, it did them in extreme detail and you had to do every step <laughs> properly. Um otherwise otherwise your patient would die basically so so like you couldn't be there just sort of carving funny shapes into their spleen with your scalpel because you felt like it because they would just bleed out and die if you did that um without but, nanobots what's the point <laughs> exactly um but yeah tra- it's trauma center um i've mentioned it in a previous episode so it's it's very much uh, arcade surgery <laughs> it's never less funny like it's like the third or fourth time we've mentioned arcade surgery yeah but it's it, it's great in that in that you you kind of almost switch off from the medical aspect of it of a while because i'm i'm reasonably squeamish when it comes to sort of blood and guts and medical procedures and that sort of thing but i've never had a problem with trauma center i had a big problem with life and death because that really freaked me out when i was a kid but Trauma Center, I've never had an issue with, just because the the actual graphics of the operation side of things are so kind of abstract and and gamey that, um, yeah, you you don't feel like you're sort of doing a medical procedure in quite the same way. It very much focuses on the the gameplay side of things. And Trauma Center, at its heart, is a game about remembering gestures, about how to do various things. Um, and so, so it's, it's remembering that sort of your initial incision, you need to take this one tool and smear antibiotic gel down it and then do a, a nice neat cut down there as quickly as possible and that will get you the most points. And then there's things like dealing with tumours in there, you've got a specific procedure that you need to do and again, remembering the various gestures and tools that you need to do that. Um, yeah, re- remembering that will let you get more points, will let you, uh, will let you get complete the whole procedure in, in a better time at the end of it so it's about remembering how to do things so and so some people kind of re- uh, compare it to a puzzle game in some ways mm-hmm. in that it's it's under it's about recognizing the context of things it's about recognizing something and thinking okay right i see that thing that means i need to do this um and and then the game kind of builds on that as you go through so you get you get more and more complex things and sometimes combinations of things that you have to deal with alongside each other so you then have to prioritize how to deal with things and whether uh whether the giant snake that's wandering around inside someone's appendix is more important than the thing that is putting uh putting thorns into the side of their liver and that sort of thing so <laughs> it is it is absolutely ridiculous and not at all realistic but like i say the very concept of trauma center in the first place is what attracted me to the ds in some way so the sure. first the first two games i picked up were as i say ace attorney and uh, and trauma center um and and i was really pleased with both of them as you can probably tell from that discussion there but uh, trauma center is now one of my favorite series and i'm gutted that there aren't more of them but uh, I, I i do own all of the existing trauma center games now even the one that didn't come out in europe fuck you atlas um but <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, trauma team, how I love thee. But um, yeah, so that was my, that was my first experience with the DS, and since then I've kind of had um, I don't know if I want to call it a rocky relationship, but I've kind of had an, an on-off relationship with it over the years. So mm. I have periods where I absolutely love it, and there I will play everything I own on it, and I will enjoy it, and it will be my system of choice for a while, and then I will put it down, sometimes for like a year or two at a time, not think about it. Um, 
not even think about it in a sense that's like, oh, did I really like that that much? I just literally won't even think about the DS for ages. And then I'll pick it up again with some game that I want to try. In this, this most recent case has been with the Dragon Quest series. Um, but that has sort of inspired me to, to, to check out some other DS games alongside it. Um, and so that, that, that is how my relationship has gone with the DS and also with the 3DS beyond that as well. I have exactly the same kind of relationship with that. I will pick it up, I will enjoy it for weeks at a time, then put it down, forget about it for months, even years. And, and I will just go in that cycle with it for some reason. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it is. It's, it's not that I don't like the system at all because I absolutely love it. I mean, we're devoting a whole episode to it. So, but uh, yeah, it's. I've never really worked out why I feel that way about it or, or yeah. why I behave that way towards it. It's funny to me, too, because, like, to me, the DS is, like, the DS family is, like, RPG heaven. Mm. So, you know, I don't know. Like, it sounds like you've been very kind of hot and cold off and on with the DS. Yeah, I, I'd in, say so. In your life. And I, I've heard, the, I've heard the, the sort of RPG heaven argument a lot of times, and... Um, Whenever someone brings it up, I often feel might feel like I, I kind of struggle to name a lot of RPGs that I might want to check out on DS. And there's obviously a lot of stuff that is, is completely flown under my radar at some point because it, it's it's a very common sentiment that the DS and the 3DS are both RPG heaven. But I, I've always been one for sort of the PSP and the Vita for that side of things. Mm. But it's, yeah. it's, there's obviously a lot of stuff I've missed out on over the years. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, you know, we, I talked about how I was kind of cold on the DS to start with, but like, mm-hmm. that was simply because at the launch time, there wasn't really a lot of games that were interesting to me. Yeah. But like, even immediately when the concept existed, where my brain went was RPGs. Yeah. Right? Like, he, here's a second screen that's touch compatible what could this do for a game with menu-based combat? Mm-hmm. Right? So like, that, that's instantly where my head went. Yeah. So like, I, I always saw the perspective, the, the possibility of it as, a, as an RPG machine. But like, so I was cold on it to start with, but like, I've never looked back once I got it. Right? right? So like, I'm, I'm looking at my spreadsheet I keep of my game collection right now. And, like, just on the regular DS, I have 107 games. <laughs> nice. Like, I love the DS. So, let's talk about some DS games. <laughs> okay, right. Well, um, should I start with some Dragon Quest? Because uh, I've, I've brought it up a couple of times already. So, Sure. Never so, a bad time. Exactly. So, um, regular readers will know that I have been delving into the Dragon Quest series for the first time recently. Starting with uh, the fourth installment, Chapters of the Chosen. So, I'm playing the, the Arte Piazza remakes for the Nintendo DS, which are... Uh, I think loosely based on the PS2 ports that didn't leave Japan. PS1 ports, uh, actually, I think. I, th- I think at least at least five came out on PS2, I believe. But so so there's, oh, yeah. there's, there's maybe been a mix of them. Certainly, I, I know that the I think the engines for these remakes also appeared in in like seven and stuff as well. So there's yeah there's there's, there's a bit of history there. But yeah, I, I am playing the DS versions of Dragon Quest. This is a short version of that story. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I've been absolutely loving them. Um, not a series that I have had any contact with previously besides knowing that it is people talk about Final Fantasy, people talk about Dragon Quest Final Fantasy I know really well Dragon Quest I did not Um, and as I've mentioned uh, when I've brought this up uh, before Dragon Quest was always described to me as a a very traditional RPG series and I mean understandably so it is the the granddaddy of them all so it's, it's, it's not at all 
unreasonable to describe it as that um but th that was all tended to be used as a sort of disparaging term towards it when when i first became aware of these games so things like dragon quest 8 on playstation 2 was described as this very traditional rpg and in in the meantime final fantasy was getting all cinematic and spectacular and that kind of thing and there was kind of this feeling that some people considered the way dragon quest was doing things to be inferior um and i can emphatically say having been playing these ds versions that no that is that is not the case at all <laughs> innovation no, doesn't have to be big to be innovation exactly like, exactly Dra yeah. Dra dragon quest is a very traditional rpg series but it's just got these little touches along the way that just make it an absolute joy to play so um the the, the three games on the ds four five and six um that make up the zenithia trilogy um, these are all examples of, uh, in their original incarnation anyway, but they, they were Yuji Hori experimenting with different methods of storytelling. And so Dragon Quest IV, you have, um, you have these four prologue chapters that involve the people who will become your party members later in the game. And so you see a short story from their perspective, you get a bit of a chance to play as just them, basically. Um, before you get into the fifth chapter, where you play as the real protagonist, you gradually gather all these characters that you've you've already met uh and then you you do the real adventure basically so that was a really interesting narrative structure but dragon quest doesn't uh emphasize its narrative it doesn't make a huge deal of it but it still manages to feel like you've got a convincing coherent world going on so it doesn't uh it doesn't give you half hour long cutscenes. it doesn't give you sort of really spectacular things going on it's it's mostly done through dialogue you get the occasional cutscenes in the later ones but it's mostly done through the characterization that comes through the text um and this this kind of is taken to another level in dragon quest 5 um which is the one i'm currently playing through hand of the heavenly bride and um hori's experiment with this one was that uh he wanted to tell the story of one character through several important stages in his life so uh, you, you start the whole game having a dream where you appear to be remembering your own birth um, and then you have a sequence where you play as a child and you meet some characters you have a relatively small area of the map that you can find to because you're a kid you can only get as far as you can get on your own two feet basically you can't ride a horse you can't buy a wagon you can't charter a ship or anything like that you just you just go as far as you can and your father is always there to support you and that kind of thing then um various things happen there is a time skip and you're into uh, sort of adolescence and uh, becoming a, a young man um that portion of the game there is more of the world accessible but you're still not able to get around the entire world at that point but you you start to meet characters that you have previously met um in including um the the three potential love interests in the game uh, one of whom you end up marrying towards the conclusion of that part of the game and then the third part there's another time skip um and after that uh you are on a quest to basically find out where your wife has gone your kids have rescued you from this horrible situation where you both uh, you and her got turned into statues and separated and um yeah from, from there again you're traveling around the world at this point you're a you're a full-fledged adult despite the fact that having spent eight years as, as a statue you haven't physically aged at all but you, you are an adult at this point so you have access to the whole world you are the leader of your party um yeah it, it is a really interesting example of 
gradually opening up the world in a way that doesn't feel in any way artificial it doesn't feel like you're being gated from anything it's just the different parts of the game you can access they make sense for the the age you're in at the time so it makes sense that you wouldn't be able to travel the whole world until you're a completely independent adult for example and just the 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 characterization of the different areas uh, the localization is amazing we've talked about i know some people have mixed feelings about the regional accents and so on but it's it's become such a core part of english dragon quest now to have those in and to have these different yeah. regions with different accents in there um and things like uh, this feature called party chat is 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 one of my favorite things which is um this is uh where depending on who you've got in your party at the time you can just press the b button and someone in your party will chime up with something about what you've just done or the area you've just entered or the treasure you just found or something and there is a ridiculous amount of text in that game there is so much completely incidental completely optional conversations in there some of which has some foreshadowing for things that would happen so for example you can you can find out your wife is pregnant long before the main story tells you that is going to happen by using the party chat feature because you, you're just wandering around and she sort of starts talking about feeling a bit queasy and and she obviously wants to tell you at one point but then decides not to because you're in the middle of a dungeon and you probably don't want your wife telling you that she's pregnant while you're fighting monsters um, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's it's just got such such wonderful personality to it, and it's it's obviously that so much love has been thrown into that world, and the the DS versions are just beautiful implementations of what was originally there in the NES and Super NES versions. Um, so you've got this, you've got lovely character art, you've got really nice use of the two screens. So just while you're wandering around, the two screens are basically used as a really tall screen, so you can see a bit ahead of yourself in dungeons, which is you don't realise how nice that is until you've you've actually got that facility. Um, mm -hmm. Because on most other platforms, you're playing with with a wide display, so you can you can see to your sides, but you can't see much up and down on the screen. So on the DS, you've got the other way around basically. Um, but then also in combat, it uses the, the top screen to have all your party status, and then the bottom screen is for um, the actual combat unfolding. It doesn't use the touch screen at all, but it just it just really makes sensible use of those two screens to display information that's in a really clear, easily understandable sort of way. So, yeah, if, uh, if you too, like me, are wanting to explore the uh, JRPG library that is apparently on the DS, then Dragon, Play Dragon Quest is certainly a great place to start. Yeah, yeah, and the, the series has been very prolific on DS. So yeah. you know you've got you've got the Zenithian trilogy, which is four through six. Yeah. Um, you also have nine, which yep. is very very celebrated, um, and a great game. Um, there's also two of the Dragon Quest Monsters Joker titles, which is basically Dragon Quest meets Pokemon. Yeah. So if like me, you really love the goofy like pun enemies of Dragon Quest, like there's a whole series of games where you can collect, trade, and breed and fuse them. <laughs> Um, to your heart's content it's a lot of fun mm. um, there's there's also um, Dragon Quest uh, Rocket Slime I don't know if you're familiar with this or not I, I've heard of it I don't know anything about it <laughs> which is a really goofy fun action RPG about the war between the slimes and the platypunks <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so like the game is split into two two sections of gameplay where you have like kind of the action RPG like overhead Zelda kind of thing where you have to like explore these various environments that are full of like stage gimmicks and stuff and like collect materials mm -hmm. 
then the materials that you collect then become the ammunition that you use in the tank battles that happen <laughs> between so 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 you have a tank that's shaped like a slime that's also like a mobile fortress so like then you you get into these massive tank battles where like the top screen shows like your tank versus the enemy's tank and like the tanks are goofy because they're like themed around whatever like dq enemy tribe is like using the tank (laughs) and then like you the bottom screen is the action rpg then and you're running around your inside your tank like commanding your troops and like like moving fuel and like carrying ammo back and forth from like the stores to the cannon to like fire so there's it's like like a real-time like combat thing going on that sounds amazing yeah (laughs) yeah rocket slime dragon uh what is it called dragon it's not dragon quest heroes rocket slime it's dragon quest yeah dragon quest heroes rocket slime yeah great lots of fun and and beautiful pixel art it's all 2d nice I don't. I'm, I don't. I'm, I just assume you didn't get that <laughs> in, in in the UK, but I, I, may, I, I, maybe I don't see it. I'm just looking it up on CEX now, and there's there's no listings for it. But uh, yeah, well, but the original DS is all region. Yes. So if you can find a copy on eBay or something, yes, one I'd like to look out for. Yeah, yeah. There are American copies on Amazon going for about forty quid from the look of things. Yeah, I think there's a couple of them, but we only got the one in the West. Yeah. I think there's like three. I think there's three of them, but it's yeah, we only got the one. Dragon Qu- it probably yeah, Dragon Quest has had some really weird spin-offs over the years because there's um there's the the board game as well as there the um, Fortune Street. Yeah, which is like Final Fantasy plus Dragon Quest, like buddy buddy time. Yes, uh, and then there's the Wii version, which is Dragon Quest and Nintendo characters, which is just oh okay, which is just just bizarre to see. That, that is the only one in that series that we we did get over here in the West. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've played a bit of that recently. That's that's a lot of fun. And that's that incorporates a lot of the. Um, a lot of the sort of Dragon Quest localization stuff. So you've got you've got slimes who are making terrible puns on the word goo and ooze and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. all, all of the platy punks all talk like mafia mobsters, which is just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, the the history of Dragon Quest spinoffs is really interesting, and I won't spend much time talking about it because it's not really pertinent to the DS. But mm. like, you know, the um, the mystery dungeon genre. Yes, which is huge. Which is huge in Japan. Was started by uh, Torniko's Mystery Dungeon. Torniko from Dragon Quest IV. Yes, got a got a spinoff game, and they made basically a Japanese take on the roguelike formula, mm-hmm. and that was where Mystery Dungeons came. Like what we consider the Mystery Dungeon title now. Like that started with Torniko's Mystery Dungeon. Yeah, and, it, and th- then that is a genre that is is kind of remained relevant today as well. It's like the, the base mechanics of a mystery dungeon game haven't really changed a whole lot since those Tornica games, have they? No, I mean, refinements and, of course, different mechanical things based on the property and, and the game itself. But mm. yeah, the, the base formula is very much... That that refined what we consider the mystery dungeon formula. Yeah. And that, which is crazy to think that that was simply a, a character-themed spinoff from Dragon Quest basically refined an entire genre, which is tremendously prolific mm-hmm. across many different properties too yeah definitely all right okay i don't want to get too caught up on dragon quest because i've uh, i've said my piece now so uh, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's hear from some more from you on some of your favorite ds experiences 
Yeah, so like something I wanted to bring up was like I kind of fell down a rabbit hole when I was doing research for the um, for this episode. Uh, you know, kind of looking into my library and doing a little research online, trying to figure out like kind of what were some more interesting games I wanted to talk about because I didn't want to talk about the same stuff that everyone talks about. Oh, of course. Um, and it's like one game I really wanted to make sure to bring up was um, the Dark Spire. Yes. Which is a very traditional. Um, first-person dungeon-crawling RPG. Now, this is a genre that, thanks to Etrian Odyssey, which also got its start in the DS, has really kind of bloomed and become very popular these days. Um, the Vita played a really big part in that, but um, the Dark Spire was interesting because this was this came out at a time where these games weren't so huge, especially in the West. Yeah. Um, they were kind of dormant, and the Dark Spire is, although Japanese developed, very traditional in a Western sense. Yes. So, so it hues a lot closer to kind of those ancient PC first-person dungeon crawling games. It's more like a wizardry, like mm. the old Western-developed wizardry titles. Yeah. Um, like the D and D roots are very strong in it. So, like when you make your party, um, the characters also have alignments. And the mixture of alignments that you end up creating when you build your party actually affect it, your your efficacy in combat. So, like, you don't want to have someone with a dark alignment and someone with a light alignment in your party. Like, it totally will affect the way. Mm-hmm. You basically have to choose a dark or a light playthrough. Like, it's got all kinds of, like, really classic stuff like that. And it is super hard. Yes. <laughs> yes. Super hard. Yes, I, I, I've briefly looked into it, and it's it's... It's cool in that it um, implements a lot of stuff from traditional uh, tabletop and, as you say, these old-school PC dungeon crawler from, from Western developers. Um, right down to things like when you create a character, uh, you have to you have to roll their stats. Yeah. And, and when you roll those stats, that's it. It's like you can either re-roll them or you can take them as they come. There's no adjusting them. You just have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> and... Yep. Yeah, that 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 in itself is a really unusual thing these days. Because like even the, even some of the slightly older D and D games like Baldur's Gate and such like even those allowed a certain degree of stat customization. But yeah, this this is a case of you've got this character, um, they may have some flaws. How are you going to deal with that? And that that is something that's straight out of tabletop role playing, which is very mm-hmm. interesting to see in in a game like this. Yeah, it's got a really cool visual presentation um, with a, with a strong use of like black and deep shading, mm-hmm. um, which is very very different. It's got a very unique look. Uh, I'd compare it something that's modern that people are kind of aware of right now was uh, that indie game Darkest Dungeon also yes. had a very similar, yes. but this was two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dark Spire came out. Um, you know the joke I always tell people is, um, uh, you know the not right now right like whatever is the Dark Souls. Of, mm-hmm. of whatever genre when it's popular <laughs> but like so like having played the dark spire when like dark souls came out like my joke was always that um dark souls was the dark spire of action rpgs because <laughs> because c- dark spire came first and did this whole like super difficult like punishing but you learn from every mistake thing yes. but it wasn't a first it was a first person dungeon crawler yes um so i really like dark spire for a lot of reasons um besides the gameplay the visual presentation the soundtrack is incredible so when i was kind of looking up some talking points about it i kind of fell like i said down a rabbit hole looking at the developer's success um 
So Success is a pretty prolific developer, and they've been around for a long time. Um, one of the series they're most famous for is a, a series of a cutesy shoot 'em ups called Cotton. That's kind of where they made their big name back mm. in the day. Yeah. Um, but I had not realized how super prolific they were on the DS specifically. Because um, when I had been preparing for this episode, I had written down three titles for games I really, really liked on the DS that not a lot of people give a lot of lip service to, and it turned out... All three of them were developed by success. Yeah. So uh, another one I wanted to mention was Rondo of Swords, which is a really slick uh, action—not uh, action—strategy, uh, turn-based strategy RPG with a with a grid map. Um, and the difference being that instead of like moving one character next to one character and then selecting fight in like a traditional sense, um, you actually use the touchscreen to draw a line. And your character runs along that line through the map, and like the characters he passes through are the characters he attacks. Oh, okay. So it's a really cool game that's really only possible on DS hardware mm -hmm. because of the touchscreen implementation like that. Um, that's a success game, very mechanically interesting. Um, I also really liked a game called Drone Tactics, which was a just a traditional turn-based grid-based strategy RPG where all the units were giant robot bugs that you could like customize with weapons and stuff, mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. So I really like that. So I just wanted to talk about success a little bit and mention them, because I think that's really cool how, uh, how they were so active on the DS. Yeah. Um, so they've got a great library of games. Um, another game I wanted to mention um, was one of the first games I got on the DS, which is a puzzler called Polarium. Oh, yes. Which is really cool. Um, so Polarium is once again that was an early DS game when they were really focused on using the touchscreen as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a kind of traditional drop puzzler where you have the rectangle of blocks filling up. It integrates both screens, right? So the stuff starts dropping from the top screen and then drops into the bottom screen. Um, and the whole basis of Polarium is every tile is either black or white. Yeah, and and they drop in interesting patterns. So if if you make a row that's all black or all white, that row will disappear and free up that space. So what you do is you take the pen or the stylus on the touch screen and you draw a line across whatever portion of the blocks are on your touch screen, mm -hmm. and whatever you draw that line across will flip to the other color. Right. So white to black, black to white. And so the idea is that as these pieces fall, and they'll inevitably end up drawing these lines, and you have to try to draw your own lines, kind of figure out these patterns very, very quickly as the screen is filling up to flip these blocks to clear that space. Okay. So there's the kind of the traditional mode where it's filling up and you just have to stay alive, and then there's also a puzzle mode where they just present you with one... one configuration of tiles and your job is to figure out how to clear it entirely in one line mm -hmm. and it gets a lot more complicated than you than you think because white to black and black to white so like some areas it'll be checkered uh, it, it's really hard to explain without looking at footage of it but it's a really cool puzzle game mm. and quintessentially ds because of the touchscreen implementation yeah it sounds like yeah um see what else should i keep going i've got a <laughs> Um, I, I can list. I, I'll jump in for one, and then and, yeah, uh, please you, do. You can carry on. Um, so uh, I've got a few I want to talk about, um, mostly along the same sort of lines as those games that initially attracted me to the system. So 
Uh, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is a adventure game come visual novel. Emphasis on the visual novel side of things. Um, the, the the format of that is very much like uh, sort of uh, mid to late nineties visual novels, which kind of wanted to pretend that they were adventure games more than they actually were. In that, rather than just clicking through the narration and dialogue, they would um, they would provide you with an interface that allowed you to move from area to area, to interact with objects and talk thing talk to people. Um, there was there was sort of one set critical path through the game that would allow you to advance the story with a few choices to make along the way but uh yeah that was that was basically how phoenix Wright worked um one game that is is sort of uh vaguely related to that in terms of execution so i don't think you had any any actual developers in common but in terms of execution that's very similar um is a, a game called life science uh, which was called Life Science Surgical Unit in the States and Life Science Hospital Affairs in Europe. Hospital Affairs. Yes. Um, <laughs> so um, this is a game. It's actually the second in a series. We didn't get the first one over here. The first one was, I think it might have been a Game Boy Advance game or possibly a DS game. I'm not sure offhand. Okay. Um, e either way, we didn't get the first one. Uh, but y you can kind of jump in with the second one. It makes a few references to things that obviously happened in the first game, but in such a way that it, it, it doesn't feel like you missed out. It just feels like this stuff happened before the context of the story in the game. And uh, what Life Signs is, uh, basically, is... Um, whereas Trauma Center puts very much an emphasis on uh, arcade surgery, <laughs> um, <laughs> Life Signs is a game about... Um, what life in a hospital basically so uh, you play this guy uh, Dr. Tendo and uh, you are a guy who is uh, sort of sort of coming at you coming out of the top end of his training basically so he's, he's still got someone who is uh, who he's responsible to uh, but at the start of life science he uh, takes on the responsibility for this new doctor who comes in as well uh, who happens to be a pretty girl but you know um, and, and I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, and the, the as you go through the story, it's it is the the, the story of uh, of Doctor Tendo dealing with various patients and such like, and it, it's split into episodes where sort of the main focus of each one is an individual patient who's got a particular problem of some description. But the the overarching story is about um, how this new doctor is learning to adjust to life in the hospital and how she deals with stress and depression and that sort of thing. So it deals with some serious weighty stuff along the way uh, both in terms of the uh the things you're dealing with with the patients and the uh, this sort of uncompromising look at, at the life of a doctor in, in a modern hospital um it didn't get very good reviews when it was first released because it came out around a similar time to trauma center uh, and thus it got directly compared to trauma center and the two games are nothing like each other so Trauma Center has sort of fairly brief story sequences between the um, the surgical sequences, whereas Life Science, the emphasis is very much on the dialogue side of things. So um, you wander around the hospital, you have the option to go to different areas and talk to people. Um, you have to do sort of diagnostic procedures as well as the surgical side of things. Um, and then the, once you do get into actually doing surgery, it's a much more sort of realistic approach to it. It's still done with stylized anime style graphics, but it's it's, it is much more um, in line with what you'd expect from that sort of procedure rather than just sort of slashing someone's abdomen open as quickly as possible. Um, and the interesting thing with it is it had um, 
it didn't have a sort of discrete routes through the game but each of the episodes had good and bad endings so obviously you, you could get a game over by killing the patient in that particular episode but there were also ways that you could um you could sort of succeed in all the things that you were supposed to do but still get a bad ending for that episode and that was based on things like a combination of the choices that you made the way you interacted with people uh, your relationships with the characters and also in certain instances how well you perform that procedure so a good example for that is the first episode where um the the main patient you're having to uh, to deal with uh, you get towards the end of the episode, you take them into surgery and you're starting to do this. But at the same time, while that is happening, um, this uh, this girl who's been in a car accident gets brought in and she's obviously going to die if, if someone doesn't do something for her. Um, and uh, at that point, you're already engaged in this surgery. So it's leaving this this stressed out new doctor to, to deal with it. And if you don't uh, perform that first surgery quickly and efficiently enough, uh, then she will fuck up the surgery that she is doing uh, because you weren't there to help her and support her. So that will lead to a bad ending for that chapter just because because of your actions. And it was just a really interesting game because you, you could go through and it, it actually specifically said in the manual that sometimes bad things will happen. Um, there are ways random, but sometimes bad things will happen. And it, it was quite unusual to see um that actually specifically referenced in in the manual and it's it's just such a fascinating game that like i say it, it got such poor reviews when it first came out because it wasn't trauma center but it's a really interesting game in its own right hmm yeah i mean i, I don't think i was familiar with that game at all mm. like even even like not like un, until i heard you talk about it like i i don't even think i remember seeing it <laughs> yeah on sh on shelves yeah so. it's it's that's really really cool it sounds interesting it's it's one of those ones it's it's got sort of a reasonable pedigree behind it so it was developed by uh spike um oh okay of, of spike jumps off fame um but uh i think when it when it got localized and brought over it was certainly in europe it came out through one of those sort of um budget publishers that you sort of don't really get a lot of hype and they don't sort of oh, okay. really promote like ignition stuff. or something yeah it was it was joe wood productions in this in in this case um and it was uh, dreamcatcher games in the states who Oh sure, yeah. Yeah, so, I forget who they became. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, oh, apparently they are a subsidiary of, of Joe Wood. So, uh, yeah, they're the same company now. Um, but yeah, it, it got like no promotion. Uh, you were lucky to see a review of it at the time. So it, it obviously just sort of slipped out and just sort of disappeared without anyone really noticing it. But um, I just happened to pick it up one time because I saw a cheap copy of it and it sounded interesting. And yeah, I was really, really pleasantly surprised with that. One. So that's definitely one to look at if you enjoy um the ace attorney series certainly if you're interested in kind of interactive medical drama if you're interested in games that tackle some some weighty themes in really sensitive and uncompromising manners um yeah it's, it's just a really really cool game that, that no one has heard of yeah that's neat especially like you know that level of mature handling of themes like that is something that games often get criticized for failing at mm. So, so to hear that there is a game out there that puts appropriate weight to your actions, like, you know, it isn't arcade surgery, quote-unquote. <laughs> no, you're not, like, sucking nanobots out of someone's pancreas. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then smearing green jelly on it, and then everything's okay. Yep. yep. Like, that's really cool. That's really cool to hear that there's a game like that out there. <laughs> um, along similar lines, uh, I just want to bring up Hotel Dusk as well. Uh, which is, oh, yeah. Uh, which is... Um, 
again it's it's sort of a, a combination of adventure game and visual novel um the interest the, well there's several interesting hooks with hotel dusk uh one is that uh it's it's one of the games where you hold the ds vertically like a book so you've got two tall screens rather than two wide screens um and secondly is it's got this really really cool art style uh, which is all based on um, sort of hand-drawn rotoscoped characters. So anytime you talk to someone, there's this lovely kind of pencil sketch of them. But it's it's an animated pencil sketch, and it's done in the style that... I, I don't know if there's a technical term for it, but it's done in the style that every frame has obviously been drawn individually uh, without without a huge amount of reference to the previous one so you will you will sort of see like outlines will sort of move slightly and shading might be slightly different and it gives sort of a yeah you, you know what i mean it's uh, i know exactly they say sometimes they call it squiggle vision yeah but but uh yeah it's like dr cats yes yeah <laughs> i i mean it's it's not overdone by any means but it just means that the characters have a bit of animation and life to them even when they're not directly doing anything and, yeah, it's and, cool. And the actual animation of them when they do do things is is amazing because it, it it's rotoscoped. It's it's drawn from sort of video reference and so on. So it's incredibly realistic animation done in there. All obviously done by hand. Um, it was um, originally released just sort of as a standalone thing, and then and then later re-released as part of Nintendo's Touch Generations line of games uh, because it made extensive use of all the DS's features. So it used the touch screen for various puzzles. Uh, it also used the microphone for various things. Mm. So you had to sort of uh, blow on things. Um, I have a vendetta against DS games that make me use the microphone. <laughs> I did, this, this is not a game that makes heavy use of it by any means. And if I remember rightly, there are sort of alternative button-based means of doing things. But Oh, good. Because me and the panpipe sequences in zelda spirit tracks don't get along very well <laughs> i love that game but i goddamn hate those panpipe sequences yes um yeah i am not a huge fan either but th that is why it became part of the touch generations thing because the, the, the whole thing with that is like these these are showcase titles for the ds that show all the unique things that it can do that other systems can't do uh, I believe. I think Trace Memory was in a similar boat. Yes, did you play Trace Memory? Yes, I, th I, 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 I believe that's called something different here. I think that might be called another code over here. Um, I haven't played that. Oh, that, okay. that is that is one I do want to check out though. Along with its, uh, it's got a sequel on Wii as well. I think hasn't it? Yes. Um, yes, that's that's one I do want to check out, but I haven't got round to it yet. But yeah, it's, it certainly sounds very similar to this. Um, Hotel Dust was cool because you had. Um, besides this sort of storytelling sequences with these lovely hand-drawn characters you had um a, a 3d first person view so you could actually wander around this hotel so rather than as in something like uh, ace attorney or life signs where you just go from 2d scene to 2d scene in this one you're actually wandering around the hotel and seeing the context of where things are in relation to one another so there weren't any like action sequences or anything like that that required you to kind of run away from things or anything but just the the feeling of being in that environment really really made it a very immersive sort of game and it had uh, it had a good story it was a sort of um retro style hardball detective type story where you're trying to solve this mystery that happened in this hotel uh it got a sequel uh called last window the secret of cape west uh, which i believe didn't come out in america but did come out over here in europe um hmm. i haven't played that one i do own a copy but it's one i haven't actually got around to trying yet but uh, hotel dusk is definitely um 
a game that often that people often bring up as a highlight of the the DS adventure game library, which is uh, another genre that the 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 platform as a whole is is pretty strong for. Yeah, uh, well, success also made the Touch Detective. Oh yes, yes, t- one and two, and those are those are quite well thought of. Those are also success games. I never played the second one, but the the first one's really quirky and cool. Yes, yes, definitely. I'm I, I'm I'm not super familiar with them, but I I know the name certainly. Okay, um, I think only other one I want to bring up is is just a kind of a silly one, really, but um a game called uh, for, uh, over here it's called 42 all time classics and in the states it's called clubhouse games oh yeah you wrote an article a little while ago about that one right yeah now this is this should be the worst kind of shovelware crap but everyone i bring this game up to goes yeah that was amazing that was my favorite game on my nintendo ds and it's just a compilation of board games and card games and sort of parlor games and that sort of thing. But it's just tied together so wonderfully with this lovely, consistent aesthetic. Uh, it's got great music, which is not something you expect to say about this kind of game. It's got so many different games in there. And it's got a feeling of actual progression in it as well. So rather than just sort of picking a game and playing it when you feel like it, like a mobile game or something... It's got a couple of dedicated single-player modes, one of which you work your way through a sort of linear sequence of different games, and it gives you an excuse to check out all the games and learn how to play them and get better at them. And then there's this challenge mode as well, which gives you um, sort of a specific setup in one of the games and then challenges you to not only win the game, but also do something specific during the course of that game. So, for example, if you're playing a game of, um, I think they call it I Doubt It, but it's also known as Cheat, depending on who you talk to, that that card game. Um, There is a challenge for that where you have to win the game, but you also have to successfully call Cheat five times in the course of the game. Okay, so it really stretches your ability to... to play the game within its rules and mechanics yeah. not just squeak by with a win exactly and the interesting thing about those is uh, a lot of them initially sound impossible so like when you're playing against a computer it's, it's very difficult to know when they might be cheating but um if you think about it a bit more there are ways to actually manipulate the game so you know exactly what the computers have got in their hands um and so a lot of those challenges are ways of sort of creatively working your way around the base mechanics of these simple card and board games and, and using those mechanics to your advantage to accomplish a, a particular goal. Um, and yeah, it had a really nice multiplayer implementation as well. It's one of the DS games that had the uh, the download play facility. So you only needed oh, okay. one cartridge to play wireless multiplayer. Uh, you, That's nice. You could just beam beam the game to someone else you wanted to play with. And I think you could play up to... Uh, I think there were, some games did up to eight players that way. Uh, and you just needed one copy of the game to do that, which is great. Um, it had a, a, a sort of picto chat style messaging system in it as well so although you you had to be sitting in the same room as people to be playing with them you could still send them clumsily drawn pictures of penises while you're playing to try and distract them uh, that's important that is very important with early game and it's underused these days um but there we go yeah so so 42 all-time classics clubhouse games it, it is a surprising classic in the ds library judging by everyone i've spoken to and it's certainly one of my favorite ds games that i still regularly um get out and play just because it's something you can dip into for a few minutes to just have a bit of fun with Mm. but there is some structure there if you do want to actually sort of challenge yourself and make a bit of progress as well so 
All right, I think those are all the things that I want to talk to. So I will uh, wind you up and set you going uh, on, the rest of the, <laughs> on the rest of the things you'd like to talk about now. Oh, I'm worried. We've already been at this for almost 50 minutes, <laughs> like, and I could ke- I could keep going for a long time. Uh, one of the big ones I just want to mention is uh, nostalgia. Um, so nostalgia is a really cool RPG that was developed by a team effort between two really cool RPG houses, uh, Matrix Software, which um, is probably most well known for Alundra. Yep. Um, as well as Red Company, which is probably best known for uh, Sakura Taizen, mm-hmm. uh, Sakura Wars. Yeah. Um, so Nostalgia is um, a really cool RPG with a early 20th century setting. Um, and I hate to be like that guy who boils all games down to like, it's this plus this. But it is essentially Wild Arms plus Skies of Arcadia, Good which is, yeah, which is a Co- you know, a collaboration of things that my brain has difficulty even comprehending sometimes. <laughs> um, so it's traditional turn-based RPG with this really cool nostalgia-tinted uh, setting, wherein you play as like a like a treasure hunter. Like, so like the whole thing has like a, like an Indiana Jones kind of feel to it, like exploring ancient ruins, like solving mysteries, um, and then you also have an airship, and then there's airship combat. Okay. Like turn-based airship combat as well as the regular like dungeon exploring battles so that's a really neat game uh, i like that a lot um there's really cool entries for the uh secret of mana series on the ds that don't get talked about a lot because they got kind of torn apart when they were released originally because but, uh, they weren't children secret of mana yeah because they yeah because they weren't secret of mana but um children of mana is a really cool game and uh, a lot of people didn't appreciate it because it was very repetitive mm-hmm. but um what children of mana was was basically an attempt to make secret of mana diablo <laughs> so so um you explore this tower with randomly generated floors and enemy layouts and stuff um and you just go you just have at it it's an action rpg um you collect these like little gems that drop from enemies and then there's like a like you have a jewelry box quote unquote that you use on the touch screen to organize the placement of the gems and like the way they sit next to each other and like fit in together dictates what kind of like stat boost and abilities you have okay. so like you're, you're always trying to collect new gems and arrange them in new ways um it had multiplayer it was just one of those games that was you know it wasn't conducive to playing a game the way a professional reviewer would have to play it, yeah. right? Like, to sit yeah. down and, like, marathon it with 16-hour sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was very much designed to be played in, like, 10-minute bite-sized snippets. Right. Like, I've got 15 minutes to kill on my lunch break. Let me burn through a dungeon on Children of Mana. Like, and so in that sense, it was really neat. It was really cool to have a action RPG with that kind of loot uh, cycle built into it set in the mana universe with that very unique visual style Mm. so i'm very fond of that game uh there was also another mana game on the ds heroes of mana which was kind of part of kind of a unique genre that was kind of exclusive to the original ds which was these kind of rpgs that were also real-time strategy games like hybrid together um and there were a couple examples of this so children of mana was one of the big ones there was also a spin-off sequel to final fantasy 12 uh final fantasy 12 revenant wings yes yes that played played this way where you kind of drew a circle around the p- characters you wanted to move and like direct them with the touch screen there was also two spin-off titles for the mistwalker rpg 
Blue Dragon mm -hmm. that was on the 360, the Xbox 360, got two of these style games. So that that was kind of cool because it was like almost a whole genre of RPG that was just isolated entirely to that system. Um, so I like those a lot. Those are really interesting. Um, you know, we mentioned Inacreates earlier. Um, the Inacreates Mega Man games on the DS are pretty much like the pinnacle of modern side scrolling. Um, you've got the, uh, the original Intercreates Mega Man Zero titles, 1 through 4, were on the Game Boy Advance, but on the DS, you can get a collection with all four of them on a single cart, okay. which is, ama which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were the DS-specific ones, so uh, Mega Man uh, ZX and ZX Advent were both available on the DS. Great side-scrollers. Um, I could just, like I said, keep going and listing games. We <laughs> talked about how great way forward is well way forward made contra 4 mm -hmm. on the ds which takes advantage of the two screens in really brilliant ways um because you get like a grappling hook and you can like zip up into the second screen oh, cool. like, it, like it's, it's both screens running at the same time yeah. um so like some of the levels are vertically oriented like waterfall climbs yeah. and like all the way up using both screens which is really really cool um for those of you who are fans of front mission um the first Front Mission game that ever officially came out in the West was Front Mission 3 on the PlayStation. Um, so now that emulation's dying, right, the, o the only way to officially and legally play the first original Super Nintendo Front Mission in English is to get the DS version, which is really cool. Okay. Um, loads and loads of cool stuff. The DS Zelda games are fantastic. Apart from Except the, the panpipes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah yes, because that's because that's terrible. Um, uh, let's see here. Ninja Town was a really cool uh, desktop, like a tower defense, real time tower defense game. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people love Might and Magic Clash of Heroes. Oh, that yes. originated. Yes. Big fan yeah, of that game. That originated on the DS. Yes, I always um, forget that because I've I've played so many versions of that over the years that yeah you forget where it came from. Um, yeah, because there's the newer versions are like HD graphics, but the original one was beautiful pixel art mm, sprites. Yeah. Um, there's a weird Ridge Racer on the DS, that, which is actually an updated port of the 64 mm -hmm. Ridge Racer 64. Yeah. Uh, Ridge Racer DS. Um, yeah, just crazy stuff up uh, there's an rpg from media vision the developer of wild arms called wizard of oz beyond the yellow brick road which is which is i kid you not a turn-based rpg wherein you are dorothy and your party members are the freaking cowardly lion the tin man and the scarecrow <laughs> and 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 you control this thing with a simulated trackball on the touch screen wow like why even in an rpg i don't know <laughs> But, wick, but wicked cool. Um, yeah, just, you know, Rhythm Heaven. I know you're a fan of the Rhythm Tengoku series. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, D, the DS one is fantastic. Yes, recent combat to um, that series, in fact, largely because of the DS version. Yeah, yeah. Um, Image Epoch, um, you know, rest in peace. Um, you know, they're not around anymore. But um, they had some of their best work on the original DS. The... Uh, Oh no! The name of the series is losing me. Luminous Arc. Yeah, Luminous Arc was their series of strategy RPGs mm -hmm. um, that got their start on the DS. That they were probably most well known for, um, as well as Sands of Destruction, which was a really cool um, turn-based RPG with a battle system very similar to the original Xenogears. Okay. 
and some and some gorgeous pixel art. Um, you know, uh, I love Picross. I have I have a hard time even thinking of playing it on systems that aren't the DS. Yeah, that's what, like, that's one of those games I just can't imagine playing without a stylus. Yeah, like just that, fe- especially Picross 3D. Just that feeling of like chipping away those cubes mm. as they break. Yeah, is fant- is is a lot of fun. Um, so I don't know I could keep doing this for a long time. So I think I think I'll wrap it up there <laughs> with Picross. But uh, oh, one more I wanted to mention is a uh, Henry Hatsworth and the Puzzling Adventure. Yes. Did you um, Did you ever play that? I did not play it, but I I have some I have some fond memories of that because um, the the group that I used to podcast with uh, they they were all American and Canadian and such like. And obviously with me being the sole Brit there, when Henry Hatsworth came out, I I would constantly be mocked with calls of good. Sh- and such like yeah um i yeah. i actually haven't played the game yet but it is one that i picked up recently just because i specifically remember the good show side of things um yeah so it's, I, it's i will great. be taking a look at that at some point for sure but uh yeah yeah so henry hatsworth for those who have not experienced its majesty is a traditional side scroller all rendered in beautiful pixel art um the bottom screen has a puzzle a drop match three puzzle game going on at the same time the side scroller and the drop three puzzle game do not pause for each other <laughs> so you have to be playing the side scroller and then enemies you defeat turn into blocks in the drop three puzzler on the bottom. If you don't defeat them, if you don't make their block be destroyed in the drop three puzzler, they will appear back in the world again. Oh, like the, so like the puzzler section climbs back up, and so when they reach the top of it, it just pushes them back into the side scroller. <laughs> So you have to like manage your time and be playing the side scroller and then zipping down to the touchscreen to do the puzzle game too. And then when you power up, you can enter quote end quote tea time, <laughs> where, where, where you go into your giant mech suit that is also a like teapot, <laughs> like the, themed a teapot themed mech suit to like go on a rampage. Uh, so yeah, Henry Hatsworth. It's a lot of fun, and, and this, this and this is Western developed, isn't it? If I remember rightly, it's, it's, yes. it's EA. Which, yeah, which it's, I just it's, find it's from a, I just find that hilarious these days. <laughs> yeah, it's it was a very small like part of a very small like subset of EA just doing a tiny project, yeah. and it's great. It's so good. <laughs> I may need to boot that up later then, because like I say, I did pick up a copy recently because I saw it and I I remembered. The conversations about it, but I've never played it. But, yeah, uh, you'll love it as long as you won't be offended that it's culturally insensitive to your people. Oh, I don't, I don't care. You can, cu- <laughs> you can culturally appropriate me all you like. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really good time, and once again, only possible technically, mechanically on the DS, yes. right? Because of that fusion between the touch screen and the top screen actively happening at the same time. Mm. Sounds good. All right, let's wrap that up there before we uh, before we get too into uh, even more stuff because I, th- I think we've covered a fairly comprehensive list of uh, cool and uh, under discussed stuff. There, I think is uh, sort of a, sort of always been our mission with that kind of thing, but uh, a lot of stuff that doesn't get a lot of love but is definitely worth checking out. It's the the mm-hmm. DS has got an absolutely huge library, so it's not surprising that there's a lot of stuff that passes by unnoticed. Um, so yeah, it's 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 up to everyone really to sort of spread the word of the interesting stuff that they've found. Yeah, and I would point out for those of you who don't um, 
you know, who don't have DS hardware, don't forget that the 3DS is fully backwards compatible. Mm, yes. So the screen, the situation with the screen resolution, like, isn't my favorite. But if you don't, you know, if you can play those games on your 3DS, mm-hmm. if you have the opportunity, do try and get hold of a DSi XL, uh, just because the screen quality on that machine is just gorgeous. And just yeah, it's lovely. Pixel art looks amazing on it. So, like, if you have the opportunity to get hold of one of those, they're probably not expensive these days. DSi XL is the way to play DS games if you have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't expect to get online with it though, because it doesn't like modern routers at all. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, aside from that, wonderful machine. All right, so that is the Nintendo DS. Um, so. We'll do our usual sign-off. Chris, do you want to tell people where to find you on the internet? I've already plugged you once, but you can plug yourself as well. Sure. You can always find my artwork at uh, MrGilderPixels.com or um, on Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram as MrGilderPixels. Um, just Google it. <laughs> It'll come up. Um, uh, you know, pop on. Let me know what you think of the stuff I'm working on. I've always got something new in the cooker. Excellent stuff. And you can find me, as you probably already know, at MarioGamer.net. At the time of recording, we're still deep into Sonic Month. So we're covering uh, as many Sonic games as I can practically manage to play in a single month without going insane. Uh, I haven't gone insane yet, but uh, getting there. <laughs> um, you can also find uh, videos, playthroughs, and all sorts of stuff on this YouTube channel if you're watching the video version of this podcast. Uh this will also all being well be the first audio only version of this podcast as well you'll find that on soundcloud and that should hopefully if things go according to plan push that out to various podcasting services like apple podcasts and google's equivalent and such like as well so um i will work on getting the previous episodes uploaded to that as well so those of you who have been requesting audio only versions of this uh yeah don't say i'm not good to you Anyway, <laughs> we, try, we try our we best. We try our best, indeed. All right, so that was a great discussion there that's gone on for a very long time now, so I will just sign off and say thank you very much for listening, and we shall see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.